Hey everybody, welcome back to Bald Move Pulp. We've got what's probably going to be an epic podcast for you today. Uh, it is 2001's The Lord of the Rings. This was commissioned by an enigmatic figure known only as Dr. John. Hmm. Uh, and we'll get to his comments here in a bit, but I want to introduce the movie. Of course, this is directed by Notorious Hobbit, uh, Peter Jackson. It was written by himself, along with his longtime partner, Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens. It was adapted uh, from The Fellowship of the Ring, the first of the tomes in The Lord of the Rings by one J.R.R. Tolkien. It stars Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Liv Tyler, Viggo Mortensen, Sean Astin, Kate Blanchett, John Reese davies Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Orlando Bloom, Christopher Lee, Hugo Weaving, Sean Bean, Ian Holm. And even though he does not appear in this, I feel like it would be kind of shitty to leave off Andy Serkis. Ah. Uh, it, it, from the uh, from the starring list, and it was scored impeccably, in my opinion, by Howard Shore. I I love this movie. I love the books of Pinch which they are based. It's going to be very hard for me to not just constantly, even more than I normally do, talk over and and uh, uh, bushwhack poor Jim here. So I'm <laughs> gonna get let you get to. I'm gonna let you get in early and hopefully often. What do you think? I, I want you to talk about like your because you know. If people know Bald Move, they know that Jim kind of famously hates fantasy stuff. He makes exceptions like, for example, early stage Game of Thrones because it's decidedly kind of unfantasy fantasy. Yeah. Um, and I know that you actually kind of got caught up in the Lord of the Rings movies. Talk about your relationship with the material and uh, what you thought about it then and what you think about it after having just sitting down and seeing the the theatrical release of Fellowship of the Ring recently. Uh, so my relationship with it is, uh, when I was 14, I think, uh, I sat down to read the Hobbit and I know Lord of the Rings fans right now are going, oh, fuck, <laughs> like you, you messed up, you messed up. Cause the Hobbit is a kid's book, right? Like I, and I didn't know that. And so I, I picked up the, the most accessible or what I thought was the most accessible of the Lord of the Rings lore, uh, the Hobbit. And I read some of that and I hated it. <laughs> I just... In fact, it might be the thing that turned me off of fantasy in general uh, is that experience with that book. And so, you know, I I had friends growing up who were way into Lord of the Rings, you being one of them. Uh, I, I had a few other friends, like a lot of people in our friends group were Star Wars fans and Lord of the Rings fans um, primarily. How did we get away with being Lord of the Rings fans? I know I did because when the movies came out, I wasn't a grown ass <laughs> adult of my own house and like nobody could tell me otherwise. But, like, I'm right. honestly shocked at how many kids and teenagers were allowed to engage in Lord of the Rings stuff as a Jehovah's Witness. Uh-huh. Do you yeah, have any insight on that? they're famously anti-magic. Uh, oh, yeah. This should be anathema to them, but uh-huh. I don't know. I don't. I honestly don't know. Everybody was sneaking it, I guess. It felt like it was more open, though, you know, like we were talking yeah. about this stuff in field service and whatnot. I wonder how much of it is like broadly that this is a Christian allegory that they kind of snuck in. You think our parents were that savvy and knew that because they hadn't read it, right? Like, well, my mom, like I said, I was moved out. So she I know she did not approve and like talk, told me pointedly. But again, I had my own house. So I was running. So fuck her. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, so I had that experience when I was 14. And and then I just kind of soured on it. And all my friends were like really into it. Um, and so when the movies come out in 2000, when the first movie comes out in 2001, I was there in the theater watching it with my friends. Um, and and I, 
started to get into it because honestly, this is a fun and exciting film. Um, like the the beginning of this of this film is very good. Um, it's it's a good introduction to what I thought was going to be a main character, Bilbo. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the introduction to his character. I liked all of the hobbits. I loved Gandalf. Um, everything is going great at the beginning. And then by the time you get to the end, there's so much exciting shit that's happened with the Balrog and, and, you know, fighting orcs and, and that final battle, um, you know, with, with Boromir jumping in there. Like it's, it's also exciting that I think, I didn't realize, you know, that the middle of this movie is kind of a just a shit. I think it's a shitload of setup for other movies because this is essentially an yeah. act one of a three act structure that doesn't happen in this film, right? Like, right, right, right. Yeah. So, I, I think like, I, I don't know. I, I came away from this movie going, oh well, that was a fun experience. That was a ride, right? It's it's like a road trip movie, you know. It's fun. Um, and so so then I was like, well, maybe I can handle this stuff. And I didn't know anybody's fucking name. I didn't know the names of any of the towns. I was like, okay, well, they went to the place where they met this guy in the hood, right? Like, And yeah. then he turned out to be some fancy sword guy. I don't know. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. It, and so I could like keep up with the narrative. But, you know, you guys were talking about it like, oh, but this means that and that means this. And I don't know. Uh, yeah, but I, I was into it enough that I was like, okay, I'll see the next couple movies. Um, How about you? I, you have I, a much more hand, intimate relationship. Yeah. Right? So I, I had a relationship with this guy named Ace Jace, kind of like yours was with mine. He was a tad older, you know, yeah, like yeah. when I was 12, 13, he was 17, 18. And I kind of caught with him through his cousin, Nate, who was a little like a, a year or two older than me. And they introduced me to I had always been a science fiction nerd. I love Star Wars, Star Trek growing up, and I never really got yeah. into fantasy because I was just a no go with my mom. Right. Um, and I remember playing. I, I'm pretty sure it was Axis and Allies and Ace, Jason, Nate were going back and forth and they started making these jokes about, uh, you know, because it always comes down to these giant stacks of infantry in Russia. Right. <laughs> so oh, in the board game, so in the war. shall not pass. Kind of joke. No, there was that, but like, but the thing that because I was um, probably because I had zero exposure to this stuff, I was kind of drawn to the macabre. Uh-huh. Like some of my formative experiences were, were like being at a thrift store waiting for my mom to get done shopping for secondhand suits for me, and like you know finding a book on the Salem witch trials and like mm-hmm. reading people being burnt at the stake and shit like that, and like it just like. And they start talking about like I when this is done something about I'm gonna cut I'm gonna take your men's or at, at the end of one round of combat he he took all the chips and said these are your men's heads I'm loading them in a catapult and I'm shooting them over the the walls of Stalingrad or whatever and I'm like what and they are all laughing and I'm, what are you guys talking about and he mentioned that like well, it's something in Lord of the Rings they do to like break the spirit of the the kingdom of men uh-huh. and I'm like I've got to read these books and I checked them out of my of course the school library had them all so I started reading them somewhere between uh 12 and 13 and it's like the very first fantasy I ever read and that kind of because at that time Star Wars and Star Trek had both kind of been at a Next Generation was over. I think Deep Space Nine was like kind of, you know, wrapping up or whatever. Star Wars had gone fallow. And I'm like, I'm going to go way into fantasy now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just like I just love those books. I got I read everything that I could get my hands on regarding them. And then, you know, when they announced that the movies are going to come out, my first reaction is there's no way they're going to not they're going to fuck. They're, they're going to be 
do justice to these because it's my entire life has been yeah yeah my entire life has been getting excited about a movie based on a book that I really really like you know whether it's Tom Clancy <laughs> and this was after some, episode one came out right it, it might have been <laughs> I like or getting hyped up for something they're going to adapt from a book series that I loved and okay. then it's just never ever going to be as good especially if you're talking like made for TV TV movies or any kind of adaptation yeah um, but then you started hearing about like, you know, Peter Jackson's a real fucking Lord of the Rings geek and he's hired this guy, Christopher Lee, who's this old respected horror film actor. And he's like, was BFFs with, George, uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. And, uh, you started seeing some of the pre-production work come out and, you know, Ian McKellen famously ran a blog that kind of documented his whole experience filming it. And, and I slowly huh. started to get hype. And then I remember, Bill, okay, there's, so there's a scene in the books where uh, Gandalf has to be stern with Bilbo because Bilbo's not wanting to give up the rings. And the books describe like Gandalf is like swelling with immense power and like Bilbo's house groaning it can't contain. And I'm thinking like that's the one of the first scenes that like if they nail that, then I'm going to be f- in good shape. And it's such a simple trick because they essentially just dropped the bat. Like it f- felt like Gandalf sucked all of the light from the room into himself. Yeah. And just through his physical performance, not like he actually grew, but it looked like he grew in power and intimidated uh, Bilbo, but then instantly turned back into the grandfather. And I remember like relaxing and being like, holy shit, they're going to nail this. Because that's a really subtle job that they could have done. Whiz bang, they could have gone all kinds of different directions, but it felt real, like in a nuts and bolts, like this is a real place kind of thing. And from then on, like I, these movies were the most hyped I've ever been about anything. Like it's the the, the two towers, the Return of the King. Um, I went to a special engagement when the when the there is a traveling exhibit uh, of all the like props and costumes and stuff from the movies uh, that was going like town to town and it came to Indianapolis and it was going to be there for like 30 days and Indiana State Museum has an IMAX theater built into it and they screened all of the theatrical releases you could buy you know, for like a hundred dollars you could buy a ticket that sh- they showed them all back to back to back and then at midnight opened the doors to the exhibit and I didn't uh-huh. get home to like four o'clock in the morning it was this amazing experience and it's, it's been like one of my dreams to go to New Zealand and like tour Hobbiton and like all the sets that they still have kind of up and go to all the different locations. I, I I'm saying that I'm ate up with this, this film and mm-hmm. it's been about a decade since I've been that into something. Cause you know, I've gotten into a bunch of other things through, through bald move and probably half the, the deep Lord of the Rings lore that I used to know has been deleted in favor of deep game of Thrones lore. Sure. sure. Um, but I still like this year, I can't remember when, but Kim Renfro, I guess, has this tradition with her husband where they watch all of this extended editions on some weekend each year. And she was tweeting about it. And me and Cecil, like, you know, it's been a long time since we've seen him. So we fired him up, too. And then that led to me buying the Blu-rays of the extended editions. And Cecily had never seen the like bonus material. So we watched all of them, watched a couple of commentaries, watched like 10 hours of it's it's Dr. John's going to get his fucking money's worth because I'm coming into this thing organically ready to talk about it. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you are, because this is only the second time I think that I've seen this. I, I know, you know, we used to have board game parties and just like playing Magic the Gathering or whatever growing up with our friends group. And so like this has been on in the background and I'm sure the extended cut has been on in the background when I've been at one of those parties. But this is really only the second time I've seen this entire movie all the way through. Uh mm-hmm. And I did watch the theatrical cut for this uh, podcast. So I, I don't know. Like, I still don't know. Like, 
okay, I know Boromir's name now. I know who Aragorn is. Like, I picked up like the names of the main characters. But if you ask me, mm-hmm. where the hell you know uh, Gimli is from? I don't fucking know the name of that place. I know there's, I know <laughs> or the, the character apparently. Gimli? Oh, who Gimli is? Okay, I thought you said I thought you said where Gimli was, like it's a location. No, uh, no, where he's he said from. where Gimli's from. Yeah, okay, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I, I'm still not going to know that stuff, but you know, right. um, so so I don't have a ton to say about this uh, from a lore perspective, obviously, but I think you know you, you'll you'll be able to handle that uh, more than capably. I hope so. Uh, maybe before we get too for much further in, we should read Doctor John's Dedo because, uh, yeah. like, we're gonna get. He's also got some lightning round questions for the end that we'll return to. But uh, Doctor John, who commissioned this podcast, uh, says, "I watch hundreds of movies each year, but this remains my number one all-time favorite movie." I know the movie's long, but I was hoping you guys would excuse it because you've almost certainly seen it before. The theatrical cut is and technically comes in under three hours. I'm an inpatient physician, so while my life has been shit for the past five months, my financial situation is pretty stable. Thus, he pulls the trigger on this commission. Thank you so much for all the incredible insight and entertainment that you guys have provided over the years. Aw, that's very sweet. Thank you. Uh, I just want to dedicate this podcast to all the listeners struggling through COVID-19 pandemic. I hope this podcast provide a bit of reprieve for everyone. I actually just finished reading the book for the first time after innumerable movie watches, and I really feel the film is an improvement on the source material, as blasphemous as that sounds. <laughs> uh, well, I got some I got some heresy later on, too, Dr. John. So oh, me I'll, too. I'll go down swigging with you. Yeah. I think they cut a, I cut a lot of fat, as crazy as that sounds, with such a long movie. R.I.P. Tom Bombadil. Uh I can't wait to hear you guys' thoughts on not only the film, but also its impressive production. Short of Christopher Nolan's magnum opus, uh, I don't think we'll ever see an epic production with practical effects like this ever again. Uh, This trilogy was the Ben-Hur of our generation. I remember reading daily updates on the production online when I was in middle school. A day may come when the courage of Bald Move fails, but it is not this day. Uh, Thank you, Dr. John. yeah, I, I, I'm saying like I this back. Do you remember? Uh, do you have, did you ever read uh, Harry Knowles's Ain't It Cool News? No, not really. Because I, I got into that during the prequels and the Lord of the Rings. And I that's where I got my daily doses of like, you know, what what is this picture and what could it be and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't mind spoilers for especially Lord of the Rings because, hell, I'd read all the books, read the yeah. Cimmerillion, all that stuff. Um, but I. Um, I I hope I can do justice to the production because maybe we can start there. This is a crazy deal, um, especially for at the time where Peter Jackson went to New Line Cinema and said, I want you to give me money and time to film all three of these unfilmable books. And I'm going to do it at the, I'm going to do it at the, the back end of the world, far away from Hollywood, across uh-huh. oceans and I'm going to use a uh, special effects company that's like essentially a farm team that I've built up myself. Mm-hmm. I'm going to cast a whole bunch of people that you've never heard of. And I'm going to go away. And then a couple of years later, you're going to get the first one. And we're still going to be desperately doing post-production. But we're going to film this whole thing. Um, nowadays, that happens quite a bit, you know, when they've got a well-regarded kind of sure thing trilogy uh, or... Yeah, yeah. But but it's still kind of rare, and it worked. And I think that when you get into the production where you've got 
like there's like f- sometimes five and six active units filming all over New Zealand, which is a you know pretty big geographically diverse country uh, f- to have filming spread all over. When you have this massive cast, like I just you know the the the, the cast list I read off is just like those are the A one main characters, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you've got I I can't imagine the studio pressure on uh, Peter Jackson. He talked a lot in the commentary about the studio forcing things in and like having problems and him picking his battles and all that kind of stuff and the sheer amount of money that had to be flowing in and out. Um, I it, like this is truly what you call an epic scale, especially since they were inventing special effects that had never been used before. That massive technology to render these these giant armies. Um, yeah, that's that's one of the main the, things I remember about the production uh, from yeah. you know contemporary with it being made is just them talking about the digital effects they did um, to to generate yeah like thousands upon thousands of of digital characters in the background. But I think some of the most impressive things, and while I'll all, like as as cool as the special editions were, I'll never it'll never replace actually going to this exhibit and seeing how this stuff works. But this stuff, some of the CG is a little creaky because we're about twenty mm-hmm. years beyond. Um, not not often, but most of the things like when you see uh, Ian McKellen sitting across from Elijah Wood, and Ian McKellen looks like you know he's six foot tall, and Frodo looks like he's four foot tall. You can't see the seams because they're not there. They mm-hmm. use this really complicated, like, you know, when you've got uh, Ian sitting across from a table from Elijah Woods, Elijah is like 12 foot further into the background and they use this gimbaled set. So when the camera moves from one end of the table to the next, the table's cut in half and it's got like some kind of complicated hinge mechanism that moves it. So it, it act, even though he's 12 foot further away, the, the camera pans it and gets the appropriate parallax as if he's facing them and they worked out the sight line so it looks like they're sitting but like there is no compositing there's no blue screen work um for the vast majority and even Mm -hmm. stuff like um uh, john reese davies is like this massive man he's like six foot three six foot four elijah woods is a tiny guy Uh so they got away like anytime the dwarf is standing next to the hobbits he looks like he's in perfect scale because dwarfs are smaller than men but they're quite a bit larger than hobbits and using those practical effects, like the, tw- the the two evil towers in the movies are these 12, 15 foot resin statues that they can just crazy, get crazy detail. And then just they take cameras and swoop up and down them like they're helicopters. And yeah. it'll never look fake because it is real. <laughs> right. And so much of the stuff... Um, yeah, and then then they, they could spend the money where like you know they have to nail Gollum right, and he is still a, a, a effect that stands up really well because they they spent the money to make it. I just I just think that if you watch these extended editions and all of the bonus material, I have to feel like it's about like going to a year's worth of film school because. <laughs> uh-huh. It's it's not just like a behind the scenes like fifteen minute thing of how we did it. They show like all the camera tricks. They also talk about how like this stuff ties into the story and, you know, there's a whole like hour documentary on adapting the book to the film that talks about like, you know, their philosophy of, you know, making certain cuts and keeping some stuff. Um, And it's certainly like you, you know, I, I talk about the time that I went through the AFI top 100 this movie and its bonus features kind of ignited that love of film for me. And I've heard several other people, like I think Lindsay Ellis says that this same thing happened to her. And that's why she went to film school is because watching these special features 
made this thing go from being magical, which is amazing, to like, oh my god, this is something people can do. Mm-hmm. Like, these are techniques that can be learned. This isn't something that's like wizardry, right? It is. Yeah, it's a yeah. lot of passion and ingenuity, but like, you can actually do it. And I think that no other film and it's behind the scenes ever made me feel that way. It's like, you know what? Why is my heart stir when this scene is happening? And Peter Jackson will tell me it's because I use this technique and that technique and that technique. And then I was obsessed. I want to go see like all. And he kept on referencing like, oh, I'm doing a Hitchcock shot here mm-hmm. and here i'm doing something that you know this is like the classic castle blah 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 and i had to go see all that stuff to see like where he's pulling that material so the reason i you know like this this is kind of like the origins of bald move in a really weird way because i don't know that if i hadn't gone through that appreciation of film that like breaking bad and Mad Men reignited into that that in me like 10 years later i don't know that i would have sat down and gotten that much into the golden age of television had it not been for lord of the rings sucking me into the art mm-hmm. so it's my first of many soliloquies on this podcast <laughs> yeah I, i'm actually impressed um with how much they were able to accomplish which with what i think by today's standards is a modest budget uh this film had 109 million for its budget which back then pretty big i guess um Mm -hmm. not a lot of movies were made above 100 million but for for today's uh effects heavy films i don't know the the number of effects shots the the amount of effects work they had to do in these films yeah um, and the scale of everything, because everything is so epic in this movie, uh, it's shocking to me that they were able to create it, especially when you consider the talent they hired. Um, mm-hmm. Those people were certainly getting paid. They, it's not like these were nobodies back then, right? And now they've become huge stars. No, they were some of the best in the industry. And so, like, yeah, g- getting them to do all this work uh, in a $109 million budget, to me, is incredible. And the other thing is, like, this seemed to be one of the happiest sets I've ever heard of. Like there, there's a, a sad story about the Hobbit that came to came came back and undid a lot of this stuff. But like, all intents and purposes, everyone loved working here. They got paid fair wages. Like, there's multiple stories of, um, you know, like they do this this grueling year long shoot, and like the nine, the Fellowship of the Ring, got very very close. They all famously got you know tattoos matching tattoos they surfed together they did a whole bunch of stuff and like uh peter jackson was telling a story on the extended edition commentary where that establishing shot of frodo you know where they established him that he's not like other hobbits you know he's quiet and kind of bookish and off to his own that shot is something that they they did like six months after they wrapped the original shoot and it's elijah's first day being back at frodo and like before they filmed him he was like doing this happy little jig because he's so excited to be back in new zealand being frodo again and get to see all of his friends Uh and like apparently i mean i just saw like last year on twitter the whole cast had gotten together spontaneously to kind of have a reunion and they're all out drinking at a bar like everybody ian john reese davies sean bean uh, you know, all all of them are there having a great time. It not only was it hard work, but it seemed like it's something incredibly satisfying. Mm-hmm. You know, they hired artisans to like expert sword makers and armorers to like, you know, hey, here's this fantasy armor. Like, what would it look like if it was real? You know, and that's the thing that I came away with when I saw the exhibit is like when you look at this stuff and you look at the stitching and the materials like this, this is it looks real. It looks like something a person would wear into battle. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it, and we went, it, before this, you know, when I think of fantasy swords, I think of like Conan the Barbarian, 
He's got this chromed out, blinged out, you know, uh, there's jewels all over and the hilts is an ornate thing. And you look at like Aragorn's sword in this, it's just a really nice sword, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like it looks like it would really cut people's heads off where it, it also felt like a real tool, you know? Um, and it was different from all the other shit like Kroll, you know, he's got this like crazy Chinese star throwing star looking thing and you okay. know the uh, the sword of eternia from the uh, thundercats like sure everything was was like this crazy ornate stuff it didn't feel real or yeah, yeah. you remember when we watched what was it um that was that king arthur excalibur uh-huh where all the knights were wearing this like essentially 18th century chromed out like armor that no one ever ever has worn before in battle sure um this stuff is like you can tell like People, craftsmen sat like they hired. They didn't go out and hire some crazy movie artist. They got like John. Was it? Is it John Lee? Uh, they got the two best Tolkien artists who had been drawing shit for years, decades, and said, "Hey, you guys come in and design our sets." Uh, nice. You guys come in and, and the, the the people that had the passion for it, like Christopher Lee, you know, who had corresponded with Tolkien before he died and. Uh, had it goes through and reads the series every freaking year, uh, mm-hmm. uh like like uh, this homage. Like you get these guys in here and they're actually making suggestions and improving dialogue. It all just came together to be, you know, this could have been a mess. Like for all the reasons we kind of lined out, but I don't know if it's because it's Peter Jackson that kind of kept things grounded and, but but it, it it it's it's I don't know. It became more than the sum of all of its different parts. And no, it felt like everyone was as invested as Peter Jackson himself was, you know, like, OK, yeah. it's one thing to have this idea and want to do it, but you need hundreds of people around you to have the same enthusiasm and passion. And I think just like finding the right people, I, I was impressed with actually the way that they did um, the, the whole digital side of this. Uh, you know, this this film essentially built Weta into what it is uh, today. And when they were going out to do like digital effects, they didn't know how to do this shit and they didn't have a team that could mm-hmm. do it. So right. what they did, according to like the the scant uh, background I've seen on this in in the making of and stuff, is they got a bunch of people who were into like um, who were just like students and like people who are passionate about doing this digital work. Um, they and they hired them and said, hey, do you want to come? make this cool thing with us. And they were like, yeah, we'll figure this stuff out. Um, mm-hmm. And they talked with, with uh, ILM with Lucasfilm on some of the previs stuff that they were doing at the time to just get, you know, all the shots, you know, tinker with the shots and get them down to where they, they knew exactly. And it seemed like they had multiple stages of previs stuff. Like they'd have a physical right. previs with some of this with Peter Jackson, with a little camera on a rod uh-huh. kind of zooming uh-huh. through models. Uh, framing shots and then they had like digital previs and I was just impressed with the 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 sort of like we'll get this done you know to to an insanely high level like it's it's not like these graphics are oh well you can see that like they used a bunch of students and people who had never done this shit before to make this film no this is some of the best effects work of the time right mm-hmm. uh, it, it was amazing to me that they could get that done with a bunch of people who had never done it before. And it comes down to the passion. They've got to, they've got to show up every day excited about what they're doing. And it seems like everyone on this production did. Yeah. Cause it's going to be like a, a year long crunch mode from yeah. the person's making foam rubber orc mask to the person's doing. And like for on the digital side, that stuff didn't stop. 
Oh, like even when this movie rolled out the door, their toughest technical challenge, bringing Gollum to life late, lay, lay ahead. And there's a reason like, uh, um, you see Gollum for a fraction of a second in this movie. Yeah, I thought and it was a Peter lot Jackson's. More. He said, "This is our Alpha Gollum and uh, Gollum." I'm sorry, and we knew we had to show him, but we tried to show as little as possible because we knew we weren't quite there with it. Hands and um, eyes and a silhouette. Yeah, like that's really yeah, all you yeah, get. Yeah, yeah. I thought there was so much more Gollum in this movie. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's kind of like Jaws in that he's just yeah. established as this kind of you know shadowy menace, and you don't really get a good glimpse of him. Um, but yeah, like the the it was, and you know the actors had to come back for reshoots, and there's a couple cases where um, I can't remember. I think it was a shot where the birds came back from the mountain to give Saruman a report of where Gandalf was taking the hobbits. Mm-hmm. And I guess they had shut down production and like all those big sets of like the uh, the mines below Isengard had been put in storage. And Peter Jackson's like calling people like, uh, yeah, you, where is that stuff? It's all oh, it's all, like in 17 different pieces. We need to get it screwed back together because I got a pickup shot I need to do on this set that's the size of a small church. And they're like, okay, well, guess we'll get that done. And it was like this big piece, like three years of some of these people's lives. And they left it all out there on the screen. And it's something, you know, like this movie, I I fully believe this movie is going to be like King Kong. It's going to be like Wizard of Oz, where they will talk about it 100 years from now. Um, It will still be like a culturally important. I mean, not maybe to extend it is today, but um it'll be one of those things where like people will still watch it and have fond memories of it. It's be handed down from generation to generation, just like the books have been. So, um, what an accomplishment it would be interesting to, I wish we had time to talk about like what went wrong in the Hobbit because the Hobbit is like the bizarro (sighs) of the rings production. I hate the Uh, Hobbit movies. I hate them. I I saw them all and I've only seen the final Hobbit movie, the battle of the five fucks or whatever. I've only seen that exactly (laughs) once. Because I, I, I haven't ever seen it. I saw the first two and I was like, no, third one's not for me. They're not great. They're not great. And that's not to say they're entirely trash fire, but like, uh, in, but it's the uh, like, okay, opening salvo of this conversation. Yeah, it is the anti Lord of the Rings because Peter Jackson had way too much stuff that he could possibly film in Lord of the Rings. And it was mm-hmm. mostly platinum and gold. Um, the Hobbit's the opposite. The Hobbit's like a 200 page kids book. And yeah. he had to keep adding more and like, let's pull stuff in from the appendix. Let's pull stuff in from the Cimmerillion. Let's blow it up. Let's make this a a dark movie like Lord of the Rings, even though The Hobbit is not a dark movie. It does have some scary parts like kids stories do, but it's like early going Harry Potter level. It's like book one or two of Harry Potter. It's not yeah. even like book seven of Harry Potter, let alone a movie where people's heads are being chopped off and and flung into a city to terrify the residents. Like, it doesn't have that gear, but they're kind of trying to force it. No, um, it, it, the, the Hobbit should have been a one-movie appendix to the three-movie trilogy yeah. of Lord of the Rings, right? Like, you yeah, you want to make it and have some fun, movie. go for it, but don't try to make this a thing. You could even make two two-hour movies if you really wanted to take your time, but the yeah. three three-hour movies is <laughs> just stupid. insane. It's insane. And like, is I don't think part, Peter Jackson wanted to do it. Is that the dark uh, side of the passion? Like he's just got so much passion for this source material that he felt like, oh, there's an endless well that I can draw from here. And it'll I just think work. Peter, 
I think Peter Jackson wanted the Hobbit movies to be made. He wanted his friend Guillermo del Toro to make them. There was some kind of dispute and falling out where that didn't happen. And now he's got all these people that are friends and colleagues that rely on him for a paycheck. You know, like all these people, all this industry that he single handedly built in New Zealand, they're all like, well, come on, Peter, we're going to what? And he kind of like, God, uh, yeah, who else would I trust to do it? And he kind of like forced himself to do it. And he was exhausted. Like, you know, you look at Hmm. that's the other thing is like when I look at these special features and I compare them to like the special features on uh, the prequels. And we even did a commission. Mm. One of our last commission podcasts in the first round was we did a look at the special features of. Uh, what was it? Re- Revenge in, of the Sith. I think it was called In a Minute or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, it was like and the it's one not minute like, chunk and everything that goes into making it. And it's not like there's no passion, um, especially because you know these people were Star Wars fans from the their birth and they're working yeah. on their dream movie. But you compare like George Lucas going through mock-ups of Jar Jar Binks and the the pre the the expanded material for the Phantom Menace. And you look at everyone's kind of reaction. You look at like Steven Spielberg's honest reaction of his first cut of the Phantom Menace. You look at like there's this like kind of like a Paul cast over proceedings where everyone is so excited, but they're like, this isn't working Mm -hmm. for a lot of different complex reasons. Nothing is really working. And you look at these where Peter Jackson's run around barefoot, just excited, like, you know, going to this set, that set, like, you know, doing this. Oh, great job. Oh, oh, that looks amazing. Oh, I can't believe it looks so cool. And like, just there's this energy. He's just this ball of energy. And you look at him for, and he's also fat. <laughs> he's sure. also this little fat hobbit running around. Uh-huh. And you look in the hobbit and he's like lost a bunch of weight. And, and maybe this is just, but he looks gaunt. He looks exhausted. Hmm. Um, and I just think, yeah, the pa- I think there was the passion there. It's just the money fucked it all up. You know, the demand of having three movies, you know, the 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 disputes that led to the alienation of the first director and all that kind of stuff. I, yeah, we we could do another epic thing just on the Hobbit. I'm terrified oh, yeah. because we're like 40 minutes in this thing. We haven't actually began to talk about the movie. You know, our our <laughs> podcasts tend to be runtime length anyway. So buckle up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So should we start? Should we, yeah. should we start formally talking about the, the one movie? more thing real quick? I want to run down uh, some of the awards that it won. Um, so, oh. so I talked about the, you know, the budget for this thing was one hundred nine million. It ended up making like eight hundred almost nine hundred million worldwide. So huge, huge success. Uh, awards wise, it got nominated for 13 uh, Academy Awards the year that it came out. And it only won four of those, which. You know, saying, oh, it only won four Academy Awards is ridiculous. I'm sort of not surprised by the ones that it did win and the ones it didn't. Um, so so was the ones that it won were Best Makeup, Best Cinematography, Best Original Score, and Best Visual Effects. I mean, those, those kind of seem like no-brainers. Yeah. Uh, I right. was surprised to see that it didn't win the Best Costume Design. Of, of course, it was up against uh, Moulin Rouge, which did win. Mm. So... Mm-hmm. Pretty pretty good design there in Moulin Rouge, but you know, I lost uh, a beautiful mind. Kind of cleaned up that year, uh, winning Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, Black Hawk Down was another pretty big one, winning Best Sound and Best Film Editing. Uh, so yeah, I mean, like it was up against some stiff competition, and I will say to kind of lean into uh, more of the film itself and less of the production. I don't know that I like the middle of this movie. And a lot of it has to do with like, it's just, 
it's fast and furious names of places and they're going like things just seem to happen constantly in this movie. And it, it's not like I mentioned up front. Look, it's act one of a three act structure here uh, mm-hmm. for the, this entire film. And I kept looking at it and I'm going like, man, they're not doing any of the stuff I see in movies that I like, which, which is a lot of foreshadowing, right? And a lot of character building and like, put me put me in this place but give me like the meaty dialogue between characters those slower mm-hmm. scenes to kind of ground me in their narrative you don't see a lot of that you get it up front with the hobbits right I, and i think yeah. those are the best serviced characters in this entire movie it's like sure bilbo frodo sam gandalf those are kind of the main ones that i think they do a good job servicing the rest of them mm-hmm. i think almost feel like throwaway characters to me a boromir aragorn like all the elves they're they're just boromir, kind of, literally <laughs> yeah boromir is he gets thrown away by the end of the movie but to me like they don't do a lot of the foreshadowing that i expect of good films um and kind of the callbacks and the cyclical you know thematic stuff and then i remember oh shit this is act one right this is all right. introduction and so it could be everything I'm seeing is foreshadowing. We just never get to the part that we never get to the shadow part of it. Right. Like yeah, it's yeah. all four. Yeah. I mean, cause like, you know, um, you're right. Um, first of all, in the middle of this movie being kind of a drag mirrors the book experience, because I remember the first time I got through Lord of the Rings, I got to the council of Elrond and I almost gave up. Like, what is this? 90 pages of dudes singing songs at tables and talking about their fathers. I don't even know. Like, and also, like, none of the main characters, like Frodo's like Scott be sitting here, like, the fuck is they talking about? Yeah. Um, it's just like, you know, six page poems and shit like that, and languages that you don't even understand. Like, they just start talking elvish. Yeah. Um, and I almost say as a 13 year old, like, the fuck is this? Um, I pushed through, but like and Jackson talks about that in the the commentary. It's like, you know, the Council of Elrond is rough. Yeah. How do you it the the film has finally managed to build a head of steam out of this birthday party? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've had this like compelling action and like this plot really humming, and then the Council of Elrond, boom. <laughs> and what do you do? And his his thing is like get us out of here as quick as possible. And there's ton the expanded edition has a lot of stuff around this. And it's funny when you hear about like, I want these quiet kind of meaty dialogues with Aragorn. It's there. It's even filmed. It's just huh. all got cut yeah. because Peter Jackson had his philosophy of there's so much great material in this book. We can only keep the stuff that's doing at least double duty. Mm-hmm. If there's a quiet Aragorn scene, we can keep it. If it says something about Boromir's character or establishes the stakes or points us into the next place we got to go. But if just Aragorn like building his character, it's got to get out of there because mm-hmm. it's, we yeah. don't have time to do that. So, um, I don't know because another thing is like, I want to talk about heretical opinions on things. Cause John, you know, had the Dr. John had the, like, well, actually the movies are better than the books. Uh-huh. Um, I would agree with like so the, the the books are like six books long and the the, the council the first book is very much the Hobbit like and you kind of get that in the film like it's just a birthday party and it's Hobbits drinking and having a good time and Gandalf is enjoying stuff and then things kind of take a sinister turn but it takes a long time for the books to get out of that like Hobbit mode and then they go into the Council of Elrond so like the first half of the book is not what I would call great. Now, I think that from there on, the books are amazing. 
they don't really like ever kind of like flag in quality. And there's some things I think that the books still do better. But I will, I, I, my opinion is, I think the extended editions are worse movies than the theatrical releases. Now, oh boy. I don't, now I'm not saying they're bad because as a Lord of the Rings fan, I love all of that. I love all the extended yeah. stuff, I love all the additional detail, but they wreck the pacing of the films. Like adding another full hour almost to this does affect the pacing and the places where the film already has pacing problems, like more yeah. Council of Elrond stuff, more, you know, huh. Aragorn making moon eyes at uh, Arwen and him having his father, you know, Arwen's father coming and bitching him out about it and stuff like that. Uh, it, it wasn't the the pacing that I really had a problem with. I, I think it's it's almost has like a frantic pace to it. Uh, most of the runtime, and it's a long runtime. Uh, it was really just like everything that you know is moving swiftly along, but everything felt truncated because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, like I expected more of that scene, or I expected to get more detail on this thing, but here we are, and we're on boats now, and we're headed out of the elf village. I right. okay, I guess yeah. I'm not going to get any more of that. <laughs> Buckle uh-huh. in for orcs. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't have a huge <laughs> problem with like it it not moving or dragging anywhere it's just and i it's guess you know, the pacing they, they problems can go it, the them. other way right like <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 oh it's it's too quickly paced um sure so yeah i so i maybe should have watched the extended version but i don't know if that would have left me feeling like okay well now it's too slow or it just doesn't connect the way i wanted it to well, if you did, I'd love to hear your opinion on it because, like, that's my like it. I, there's some of the things I think you will get that you'll like more of, but there's some things I think uh, it'll feel like it drags a bit. But again, so when yeah. I say it's like a better the, the the theatrical versions are better films, I mean that like they're better structural films. It's not that I hate all the because as a Lord of the Ring fan, I don't mind when things just slow down and we get to see more of the stuff. Yeah. Um, I think there's a point because I found that point in the fucking Hobbit where it's like, uh-huh. holy shit, I'm tired of this shit. Can we get, can we just get moving on? But no, I, I, I prefer I if I'm just sitting down and watching the movies, I watch the extended editions. But I definitely think and, and I'll even I'll even as we go through scene by scene, I'll, I'll put I actually made notes about what I thought was better and worse. So I think let's let's start at the beginning, the prologue. One thing that I I guess I've forgotten because I've heard all these before is Peter Jackson talked about how the studio kind of had to fight him to put the prologue in because he's like, oh, God, this prologue going to be just 10 minutes of shit that nobody cares about and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then when they said, no, this thing needs a prologue, you can't just start off at the birthday party. He kind of warmed up to the idea. And, and in retrospect, he says it's it serves like a James Bond introduction, that it's this clear, like you come into the movie and James Bond always hits you with an action scene. So like, yeah. hey, if you're just at the mall or you just ate pizza for lunch or you're worried about your job after 10 minutes of the James Bond, you're not going to. You're not going to forget. You're not going to remember that shit because now you're watching a James Bond film and the film can then slow down and do other things. And this, you know, quite impressive medieval fantasy battle that they opened up with. Like this feels important. You got this this, you know, Kate Blanchett speaking Elvish and talking about magic rings. And you're like, OK, what is all this stuff? But then they hit you. Bam. Uh, here's here's the first War of the Ring. Uh, here's this guy, you know, this, this, and it looks like things are cool, but then this dude comes out and starts swatting 100 people at a time, and the fingers get cut off. And, uh, and it also does something I think is smart, which 
it establishes the ring as a character unto itself. Yeah, that was the thing that shocked me on this rewatch is how much the ring does feel like a character. Like it's got a will. And a lot of that comes from the prologue because it gets you, the, you know, the fact that the ring decided to do this or the ring yeah. sensed its master and the ring was able to do this and the ring corrupts like and the rest of the movie. In fact, the rest of the trilogy shot to where the ring is a character. It has weight. It has presence. It has a will that it what it wants to do. It tries to corrupt and deceive. Um, it tries to be found at all uh, all times. Mm-hmm. And that that all comes that all that tone is all kind of set in in the uh in the prologue here it's an interesting Um, dynamic because when you're seeing like the ring rates going around it's easy to think okay well they can sense where the ring is and they're following it to it but it's more the opposite right the ring is calling them toward it (laughs) you know i i don't know it's just it's a different inverse feel from what i'm used to in a film do you think that sauron works as a big bad in the prequel Uh, because like in most of the films from this point on he's just a giant flaming eyeball um yeah like i i never got that like i yeah i still don't get that i don't get that he's like the eye there's some mysterious power he has over sarvaman is that the white the the christopher lee character Uh uh-huh uh Uh, yeah I, i still it's very confusing to me very and it is i think um to be fair i think it is kind of silly that you got this big bad guy and his power is using a mace to sweep 20 dudes off his feet with a stroke, you know, but he's also sure. vulnerable to having his finger cut off by mm. a broken sword that also instantly self-destructs his entire realm when that happens. Um, it's silly, but kind of like at a Death Star has got a, a tunnel that you can hit with a photon torpedo and blow up the whole shebang kind of way. Um, and, and but I'm amazed the- that. That no one ever talks like this is something I actually thought about, but no one ever talks about like uh, Sauron feeling like a lightweight villain because it's a psychological thing. It's uh, it's like Sauron in these movies has not quite yet come to his full power. They're trying desperately to keep that from happening. And crucially, he doesn't have his Death Star yet. Right. So, yeah, it's more of a seduction, psychological stalking thriller you know kind of mental and emotional abuse tale than what you're used to which is like Darth Vader direct conflict you know force lightning against force lightning and it's it's much more mental and psychological yet most people I don't think walk away from these movies thinking that Sauron's a shitty character it's just the movie kind of wills you into thinking he's a threat because what you see on the screen is just not quite enough to establish he doesn't hurt anyone that we care about really you know, he kills some old dude's grandpa and then fails to step on another dude. <laughs> yeah, uh, and a lot of that is done in, in the prologue, like you said. Um, it's the description of of the forging of the ring, I think, right? Like what they mm. put, what qualities it has about like man's, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, quest for power and and all that stuff it is all, all the worst qualities of a villain are wrapped up into this ring. And I was confused by that too, because Sauron is the eye, but Sauron yes. is also the ring. They, there's a line in there where he, something about like his essence is, is part of this ring or trapped in this ring or. Yeah. He used a lot of his personal power to put in like, cause, cause uh, you know, th- th- there's a lot of mythology because Sauron's actually right. a, a fallen angel kind of, he's not a man or anything like that. Okay. Um, but he put a lot of his godly power into the forging of this ring. 
which means there's two things. It's kind of like, uh, you know, J.R. JR Rowling rips a lot of this off in Harry Potter, but like he's very powerful, yes, and he can't be killed because he's got this powerful thing that like if he dies, it'll continually regenerate him, but it's also his, you know, this, this mortal weakness. If you can ever find a way to kill this thing, but that's the other thing psychologically, anyone holding the ring, the last thing you want to do yeah. is destroy it. You want to put it on and you want to wield the power to do good. And then it, that it starts, that's the brilliant thing of it. It starts corrupting you. And then you become either this weak, wretched creature that Sauron will take over, or you become the new dark Lord, you know, like very much hints that if like Gandalf or Galadriel puts on the ring, They'll kick Sauron's ass for sure, yeah, but yeah. you will rue the day that the beautiful, terrible Galadriel becomes the Dark Queen of Middle Earth. You know, it's like the devil you don't know. And I think, I think all that stuff works, even if you don't know the deep lore. It was a little confusing to me because. So, what is the Eye of Sauron? What What the hell is that thing? Okay, so like when Sauron's physical body is destroyed in the prologue. It takes him a literal eon to amass his energy back, and he can't physically manifest a body he probably would have once he gets the ring back he would turn back into giant sauron mode but all he is is this spirit this baleful spirit Mm. that is i don't think it's ever you're supposed to understand there's literally a ball of fire in the books at the top of the dark tower um but he's just this spirit that's in this this that's inhabiting and and collecting and all the power and getting his lieutenants together. That's that's kind of helping him regenerate. Um, in the movie, they just make it literal. Like, no, there's actually a ball of fire. Like, yeah, yeah. the the okay. the CN tower. Yeah, broadcasting this and stuff that's out. Not um, the same tower where Saruman. No, is. there's two towers, as they'll explain as, in the second movie. Uh, yeah, I assume. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, I, I I was listening to the director's commentary and he mentions that they went through tons of different versions of this prologue. What do we leave? What and one of the final decisions is who does the voiceover. And the at first they said it's well, you know, the the lore behind this book is Frodo's writing these stories. Like Bilbo started this jo- hmm. this journey, this diary of his tales, and Frodo's writing, it's like by a Frodo's own hand the account of this. And the shtick was that J.R.R. Tolkien recovered this ancient writing and translated it into modern tongue and it's you know it's a found footage series yeah of yeah, yeah. It, exactly <laughs> okay. um but they're like well we'll have frodo because it's his story but uh, it's like well it doesn't really work because who the hell is even frodo and uh then they, they had sir ian mckellen do it as gandalf and they're like whoa this is really powerful it's working but then they had kate blanchett try it as galadriel and they really liked this kind of like timeless elfish quality she brought to the the the, the vocal performance and you know also out of that yeah. i think i think she's older than gandalf or at least his manifestation say. of middle earth too she's like one of the oldest you know physical beings in middle earth at this point yeah it makes a lot um, of sense for the elves to be sort of keepers of knowledge you know since they live yeah. as forever can live forever. They can, yeah. Okay. They can live forever yeah. until they get like their stick is they can live forever until they're too wary of Middle Earth and then they can go across the sea and live in this paradise island. Retirement um, home. Florida. And that's the thing, like the, the story of the elves are very, very powerful, but they're also just tired. They're wary of yeah. like at this point at this point, most of the elves have gone west and sailed across and gone to elf heaven. And the few that remain are there because of long-term loyalty to people and they're just trying to kind of hang things on and like hoping that man because man is a second creation like they're 
a, a, a race that came up uh, that God created after the elves, and they have the gift mm-hmm. of men, which is mortality. Like men are these, <laughs> you know, um, as opposed to elves who just Grass get worn the fuck out. On the other yeah, side of the mortality yeah. fence, huh? <laughs> well, and there's there's big plots of in the Silmarillion is essentially the powerful men being like, this is bullshit. We fucking die. Uh uh-uh, uh uh uh. We're coming across the we're coming across the waves and we're taking mortal immortality for ourselves. And that goes about as well as you think. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I think that's a, like the Gladrail starting this off. And you don't even know who the hell Gladrail is. But then when you, mm-hmm. I, I just think it just works. And I love Kate Blanchett's um, qual- this stuff. And and by far, like this movie, I don't even know how things work without the prologue because this ten minutes of heavy going gives you an exclamation mark to begin the, the movie. And also, they mm-hmm. constantly refer to it. Like yeah. they have this scene where Gandalf is talking to the uh, Elrond and why he doesn't trust men. And, you know, a scene where they'd have to establish all this shit becomes just like a five, 10 second flashback of the crack of doom. And it works because they did all the heavy lifting in the prologue. Yeah. Um, and he can be like, I was there, you know, I, I saw the evil, like that kind of thing. And your mind goes back to that scene. Yeah. And think about how many conversations about the ring Gandalf has with Frodo that would be much heavier going if you didn't know what the ring was and its qualities yeah. and who made it and all that kind of stuff. So the the prologue is does a lot of heavy lifting up front. Mm-hmm. Um, then we go to Hobbiton, and here's my big problem with the extended edition. There's a lot of extra Hobbit shit in this, but universally it makes the Hobbit seem on balance like they're dumb assholes. You know? <laughs> okay. Like they're just like picking their ears and eating their earwax, and they're doing uh... things backwards and weird, and you know. And I I think that's like. Um, it's like it's like a 60-40 dumbass to shrewd mixture, and I think it should be like 20 to 80. Like, yes, hobbits are kind of backwards, and they have their weird ways, but they're also like resourceful and hardworking and perceptive for, you know, the they have a lot of common sense. And the introduction, like, seeing that old pinched face hobbit, that Proudfoot guy, you know, like with his scowl is like this new, this, this, this Gandalf. He's all, he's always got new ideas and he's coming in and he's doing this stuff. And then him going to kind of like, you know, laughing along at the children being amazed at his fireworks. And that's the perfect introduction to hobbits, the wedding feast where, yeah, they're doing a bunch of dumb asshole stuff, but they're also super drunk and having a good time. Like, all the extra Hobbit stuff just yeah. makes the Hobbit seem dumber and less impressive. And it's, I don't think that's what the movie intends. Certainly it, not how Tolkien felt about him. If you're a Deep Space Nine fan, it's like Rom versus Quark, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, one yeah. of them is incredibly dumb. You don't know how he functions. And the other one is like, you know, kind of an idiot, but also very shrewd. Right. Exactly. Um, but I just, I don't know. I like this, this Hobbiton stuff is a great, um, introduction to the hobbits and why they are. That's a wonderful introduction to Gandalf because Gandalf yeah. is a tricky dude. He's this immensely powerful master manipulator, but he also has just in a ton of warmth and, you know, uh, a lot, uh, Frodo giving him the hug. Like I, I love his performance on the wagon where like he stone, like he like uh, stones, these kids wanting to see his fireworks and like, you know, rides past and he gives him just a little taste uh-huh. and his like a reaction, like, Ooh, you know, that's a good one. Like he just ripped a really good fart and everybody's laughing at it. Um, Gandalf dancing with the hobbits. Mm-hmm. Uh, his little demented chuckle as he goes back to his tent to get. Another, oh, they're going to wait till they see this fucking thing. 
I, Ian McKellen is just, he's just fucking Gandalf. I don't know how to say it because it's very hard to get that godlike being that's also approachable to not just children, but hobbit children, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I felt like he was, you know, half grandfather, half, you know, amazing sorcerer. Um, and the other character introduction I think they do a great job with is Bilbo. Um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like Bilbo is a real character with a history that is only vaguely filled in here. You know, he's an adventurer of some kind. He's got a book that he's been wanting to write for years. This all ring these has kind of let him unusual. put it off. Yeah, all these things very unusual for hobbits, right? You get that. Well, yeah, so I have minor complaints about like them saying, oh, I'm 111. I don't know what that means in hobbit terms. Like that could be totally mm. normal or that could be, my God, they only live to 10, typically. I have no idea. Right, right. Um, so, you know, a, a little more uh, color on that would have been nice. But, like, th- they do a great job with what they can put on screen here uh, and the amount of time they have. And I, I feel like Bilbo is one of the most fleshed-in characters of all of them. Yeah. And it, it's all um, it all comes down to this scene and, like, a scene later on. Like, it's just this party. And then when he meets them in Rivendale, Rivendell, uh, those are the two times we see Bilbo. And I think both of them are very effective yeah and you can kind of they 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 hint because you, you think that bilbo's a really cool dude like the scene where him and gandalf are smoking i think is amazing because it gives you a first taste of like you know it's pretty mundane but gandalf blowing that smoke galleon is pretty fucking righteous you know <laughs> like Toby. i can blow i can blow a smoke ring but look what this guy's doing and yeah. you know him being like at ease with this relation like gandalf and bilbo being at ease sets up their confrontation later on where, where bilbo for some reason can't give up this ring and it's kind of scaring gandalf you know um yeah i mean there's so it, much like you talked about the the double triple quadruple duty that these scenes need to do i think they do it right. so well in this early going because it's not only setting up bilbo as a character but it's setting up the ring as a character and the properties you know the effect that the ring has on on the people who possess it and it's doing that so efficiently it's telling us enough about the character but also more about the ring yeah and like as they're establishing gandalf enjoying making children laugh and dancing with hobbits they also ex- they introduce Merry and pippin as being these mischievous guys who don't necessarily think before they uh act and they're yeah. kind of decidedly unhobbitish and ca- kind of getting in trouble um this stuff is just i i think it it just it just all works really great and that scene between bilbo and gandalf where gandalf has to in you know bilbo's like well you just want to steal my ring and Bilbo Baggins, that stuff could very easily be parody, right? Oh, yeah. Um, like if you have an actor who's not taking this seriously, and also Ian Holm, holy shit, fantastic! Like, uh, when he does that, like, I almost think it's overkill to turn him into a goblin face in Rivendale because he's so good at like making his eyes bulge out and giving that kind of like, oh, this is early stage golem that he's catching. Uh, early stage Gollum rather I don't know why I keep on saying Gollum early stage Uh, Gollum with this guy like when he like lights his eyes up and says my and he's stroking and says my precious his mm -hmm. eyes look like they go slitted like a like a reptile but there's no practical effects there he's just acting maniacal like the ring is getting domination over him yeah and it's it's just it's just great Um, I think like I already said, this is the scene that kind of like relaxed me as a Tolkien fan that like they're going to get this. But 
really like I could even go back to like when Gandalf knocks on Bag Inn and I'd read so many descriptions about what it looked like. And it's also something that a lot of like uh, Tolkien artists like to illustrate. And they just not they knock it out of the park. You can still go to New Zealand today and tour Hobbiton. The whole human scale set is all there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they keep it maintained and stuff because it's great for tourism. But it's a real place that looks real. Um, I guess Peter Jackson revealed in the commentary that he's got this set stored away in his personal belongings, the entire human size bag in set, because he wants to build it before he dies. He wants to actually live there because um, it's such huh. a comfortable, like cool, like womb like place. He said the the circular walls and whatnot. But the fact that everything of this is built in two scales, human scale, Hobbit scale, um, he also said that I, I intentionally did a lot of flashy special effects work up front. Like there's a scene where, again, this is 20 years ago, Gandalf on the human size set hands his, his hat and staff to Bilbo on the Hobbit set. And that shit looks real. Like you, mm-hmm. I can kind of see the compositing on a really good 4k television with the Blu-ray. Sure. But it's really, really good. And another thing I learned is when Ian smacked his head, that that was not scripted. He organically smacked his head, and Ian McKellen, being the actor he is, had the instinct to just, I'm going to stay in Gandalf. Like, that's what, yeah, shit, yeah, Gandalf would smack his head on this. Uh Um, And they put it in the movie, the organic take of him smacking his head. Nice. I I just, I love that. And did, did you get that, like, Gandalf doesn't know what the ring is at this point. Um, he's got his suspicions based on what Bilbo does with it and how Bilbo's acting towards it, but he doesn't yeah. know that this is the one ring. Um, mm. and I, I, yeah, like, and then he goes I, I and he does all the reading on it, right? And realizes, oh, that's, that's the ring. Um, and, and they really sell that because and they test it with the fire. And when he comes back, like he's dirty, he's got like mud on his, like, he's like done like really fast writing over a bunch of crap and gone here, there and done all this research. His hair's all out of whack and all that kind of stuff. I love how they make Gandalf seem like he's been lived in uh, Mm -hmm. from the first time you meet him to when he comes back all desperate to figure stuff out. Um, And I love how they sell that initial inkling of suspicion where he looks at the ring on the floor and he, by the way, they use a ton. Oh shit. I I'm getting to digress. I'm like three digressions deep now. I'm going to hit limbo. He goes to bend down and he just barely touches it and they, they hit you with that ring of fire, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, and you, my God, what could terrify Gandalf? Um, yeah. But I was going to say, they use a lot of techniques to make the ring seem supernaturally heavy and impressive. Like when Gand- when um, Bilbo drops it on the ground, it lands and just doesn't bounce because they've had a powerful magnet under the floor and this is like a very heavy steel ring and it just like, hits and doesn't bounce. Not, huh. you know... I just think stuff like that is really fucking cool. Another tidbit that I learned from the document, the commentary is later on when there's a scene where the ring is in extreme foreground on this mountain pass and Boromir picks it up and talks a mess about, you know, so strange that this tiny thing holds the fate of us all. That ring is like eight inches wide on this massive gold chain because it's the only way they could get the extreme shot of Frodo and Aragorn in the background and all that stuff to work and, and read against this brilliant white uh, ground and brilliant blue sky. Like no, everything else looked blurry or out of focus. So it's made the ring huge. Uh, Man, it sounds like, like this film is just a nightmare for effects production, but also like super fun. I, I got to imagine like figuring mm-hmm. that stuff out was a blast. 
And I, I also, someone in this world has this giant Flavor Flav style <laughs> ring. Uh-huh. Like the, I, I, I tried to just like, is there like Peter, is a picture of Peter Jackson a rat party wearing that thing? Because like, how awesome would that be? They have this massive, you know, dinner plate size, the one ring that you're wearing, yeah. like some massive Middle Earth pimp. Um, you did you the one thing that stood out and I never noticed before Elijah Wood's poor fingernails. He just chews those two like he's got no fingernails at all, man. His, yeah. his poor. Are you I, are you a I, chewer? I feel his pain. Yeah, I got I got similar no fingernail thing going on. Does that hurt? Do your fingernails hurt all the time? They, they can if you chew them down too far, but I don't. Oh, man, I've, I've I come like, to a balance. Okay, because I was wondering because they looked like uh, like red and swollen, and I was mm-hmm. like, every time they're in frame, I'm like, oh my god, this poor guy. It's this taking this 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 film must really took it out of him. Uh, but <laughs> can, yeah, can I, like I, I go ahead, yeah, jump in, please. I was gonna say so. The next thing that happens right is they they head over to Bree, like um, you know the the ring rates get wind of it, like Gandalf comes back and, and says, hey, you got the the ring, go to go to Bree, I'll meet you there, and he gets he gets hung up. You know, he goes out to Saruman to try and like consult with him and and turns out Saruman's, you know, infested by Sauron uh, and he's doing his bidding. And then there's this old man stick fight, which I think is fucking hilarious. I think this yeah. is this is Hallmark Peter Jackson. Um, if you've ever seen any of his older stuff, this like half slapstick kind of fight it's reminiscent of, of brain dead, dead alive whatever you want to call it uh yeah that kind of that kind of vibe to it right it, it almost feels like this amateur amateur production this amateur scene in a fully mainstream high budget film um and it looks stupid to me but like in that peter jackson way that i really kind of love hmm. I have in my notes that it's it's two old men engaging in a high stakes. I've fallen and I can't get up fight. Yeah, yeah. Like, who, the way they're just like pushing each other. Over. Battle to the first broken hip, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's also, so dumb. I also that's one of those things where I think it's cool because I guess I was expecting some like giant wizard duel with fireballs and shit. And yeah, this. like Willow, I thought Willow actually has a better wizard fight scene in it than this movie does. <laughs> um, but it, it works in kind of like they're. Because I guess in magic and especially in Tolkien, it's not so much about like the physical manifestation of power as it is like you understand that when Gant- when Saruman and Gandalf are fighting, it's as much on the spiritual plane. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a battle of will and 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 power as much as it is, you know, some ninja staff kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it still feels like a moment when Saruman gets both of those staffs and it's like, oh, man, Gandalf's ass is grass now. Yeah. Um. But before we go to that, I, I want to go back and this other thing where yeah. the prologue shines so well is when Gandalf goes and tells Frodo about all this stuff. And I also yeah, think yeah. they did a good job of establishing. There's a lot of questions I think a reasonable person would ask, like, well, why doesn't Gandalf just take this fucking ring if it's the ultimate power? Right. Mm-hmm. And they do a good job of showing like what a bad idea that would be with in so many words. I love the brief relief Gandalf feels when he thinks it's not the one ring. Because it's in the fire and like there's no words and he's like oh thank God and then the words appear yeah uh, I I think that's that's great um, and I I think it also just uh, speed things up you know because um, it takes a while to go from the birthday party to like 
Frodo hitting the road, and there's a whole lot of preparation and stuff in the books where this is just like, go, 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 go. Okay. I, I was going to say, I it, didn't remember it taking very long, but yeah, the books no, maybe. No, it, it moves on. And I also just love like the introduction of Sam. Mm-hmm. Sean Astin is yeah. just such a great job because like he is the kind of dim-witted, not dim-witted, but you know yeah. he's not super curious. He doesn't read books. He loves the land. He loves working with plants and, and animals. Um, but he's a but he's, he's no, a good friend. He's no Pip, right? Pip is the dumbass of the group, in my opinion. No, he's 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 not foolish. But like, I love Gandalf's face when he's fucking with Sam. It's like, oh, please don't turn me into something unnatural. And he's like, <laughs> no. And also Frodo being in on the joke, like Gandalf's not going to turn you into a newt, you dumbass. But yeah. he is going to uh, psychologically bullying you into being Frodo's <laughs> bodyguard. Uh-huh. Um, have you seen this came out a couple of weeks ago? There's someone made a super cut of this film where every time <laughs> every time Sam takes a step, they cut the scene of him saying one. That's it. One more step. And I'll be further from home than I've ever been before. And it's like a 12 hour <laughs> cut of this movie. <laughs> that's ridiculous i love it uh i do i do love the the attention to detail um but uh i also i just think christopher lee christopher lee wanted to be gandalf he lobbied really hard because he um and i don't know maybe 10 15 years ago he could have been i think he's too old for that now but he's so good at being the formerly righteous now twisted and evil version of yeah. Saruman. Yeah. cause you can see it. You can see him being this impressive figure in like a council of Elrond situation and his gleaming white robes and his craggy face with that kind of hook nose and all that stuff. He looks like a fucking wizard. Yeah. I'm trying to picture him as Gandalf. I, I don't think of Christopher Lee as a particularly warm presence uh, in his films. And granted, I haven't seen very many of them. I'm sure there's plenty of his work where he is. Uh, but I think of him more as a Saruman than a Gandalf for sure. Um, but, uh, I, there's then when they're on the way, they're the, the first appearance of the ring wraith. Um, they do that, what they call the Hitchcock shot, which is such a simple effect, but they're, when they're looking down the road and like Elijah senses something evil's coming and the way they get that effect where it feels like things are getting bigger and smaller at the same mm. time yeah. is they pull the camera back on a dolly at the same time, physically pushing the, the camera lens to zoom. Yeah. And I still don't know how that works, makes the light bend in the kit, but it, it is like this cheap, but very effective, like something is wrong here. And the bugs boiling out of the ground, I thought was a cool, like, you know, trying to get away from this evil presence. It does a lot to establish these writers as terrifying, you know, presences. And I still think they work. They're like one of the all time best villains of cinematic history. Yeah, it Um, works until Aragorn kicks like five of their asses, burns one and spanks them back home to their mommies. Like, they they don't seem very impressive then. (laughs) That just makes Aragorn look that much cooler. Sure, um, sure. Th- that's fair. Uh, but they also established the hobbits of being like even Pip and Mary here. They're game. They don't know what the hell's going on. These they should be terrified of these guys. But you know what? Frodo needs their help, and mm-hmm. uh, they're going to give it to him. We get to the prancing pony, and here's where a lot of the other like techniques. Where if you and if you if you look for this, you'll see it all the time. But. Um, a lot of the people walking past Frodo are on stilts with like prosthetic hands and stuff. Oh, geez. Uh-huh. And you'll never notice that until you start looking for it. But once you do, you can't unsee like everybody in the background is just lumbering around in these giant stilts and there's like foam rubber hands swinging into place. And wow. Uh, but 
I think Aragorn's introduction where he's in that corner in the dark and like his eyes blaze with his tobacco pipe is one of the most badass introductions in all cinematic history. And it works really good and also continues the theme of how damn brave these hobbits are because this guy snatches up their boy and 30 seconds later, <laughs> uh, Perry, uh, Sam and, and or Mary, Sam and Pip are in there wanting to throw down with this dude who would just thrash him. Uh-huh. Uh, it's great. And the nine coming in to uh, the, the prancing pony and fucking shit up and screaming. Great scene. Uh, that especially the one that really gives me chills is when they're all kind of gliding past a barkeep who's weeping on the other side, just desperate not to be seen. Um, ah, man, I just, it, it gives me chills Wait, just the, uh, thinking the, about it. You call them the nine? I thought the nine was the group of of people who are escorting the ring. It is. So now- it's both. It's it's the fellow. The the nine were kind of like, I, and I think um, Elrond makes a passing reference to like how fitting it is that you've got nine companions okay. against the nine, okay. you know, mortal men who are given these rings have corrupted them into these wraiths, equal um, and opposite sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, but like, uh, there's so much stuff like on the road to Weathertop where there's the famous second breakfast thing establishing. <laughs> While they're game and they're brave, they really did not know what they're getting into. The fact that they are hiding out and setting this fire on this raised, exposed thing. Even Frodo knows that's a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. But just like these little things where it's like these guys will grow into very impressive warriors by the end of this. But they start off as just dumbasses, you know, that mm-hmm. don't think about anything before they do it. Uh and this was you mentioned that the like uh, uh, Vigo Mortensen comes and fucks these wraiths up. That's his literal first day filming. Did you know that? No, I didn't. He had never held a sword before in his life. And the stunt coordinators, <laughs> like he flew into New Zealand's like, look, I got 24 hours to get you some basic moves. Uh, and it is like a pretty basic sword fight. Um, but I think it's like pretty imp- like Viggo Mortensen. <laughs> really? He's just swing. He's spinning around swinging a sword and a torch, right? Like he's not. Yeah. 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 Doing much. Of but, anything, I, but I thought they yeah. did from storytelling. I thought they did a good job showing that like this is all he can do to keep these guys at bay. Yeah. Like he's like stumbling. He's like making desperate swings. He's using fire. He's using his you know, plus he's you know, you don't I don't. Do you get that like Aragorn is also like a special dude? He's got like magic blood. No, I get I no no. Okay. I mean, I, okay. I get nothing from Boromir. I get nothing from Aragorn. I get nothing from most of the elves. It's like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they're characters who are there for later movies, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean that's like the I guess to modernize. That's the little bit problematic aspect of Tolkien's work is he does have this kind of. Uh, some people are just better than you. It <laughs> oh, doesn't yeah. mean you can't be a hero because Frodo's not special at all. He's just common dirt. But Aragorn, yeah, yeah. he's just going to be flat out better. He's humble about it. He'll bow down to you, but he's got magic blood and you don't. So sucks to be you, lesser hobbits. No, I didn't get the um, magic blood thing, but I, I definitely was getting like a Han Solo chasing the stormtroopers down the hall screaming kind of vibe from yeah, that fight yeah. with Aragorn. It's like, yeah, this is this is desperation. Uh, this yeah. shouldn't work, and it's only by sheer force of will and fury that it does. Yeah, uh, and if he, and also the fact that the hobbits bought him just a little bit of time, and the fact that the ring rates are there to steal the ring and not just kill everybody. There's a, there's a lot of I think interesting things that they're doing to make it. But but also yeah, like because um, Viggo Mortensen, I can't remember the guy that replaced him, but like they hired this younger guy, 
And Peter Jackson's just like, this guy's not pulling it off. He's not getting the gravitas. We need somebody. And they they replaced him at the literal last minute after huh. they'd already filmed a little bit with Aragorn. Um, I wonder what that guy feels like, that he got replaced and this went on to become like the biggest film of a generation. Yeah, I don't like, know. Imagine if you're Luke Skywalker and, you know, like uh, six days into shooting, it's like, this guy's not working. Get Get Mark Hamill in here. Like, man, the what if. I saw a headline um, that maybe Jake Gyllenhaal was considered for Frodo. It's somebody. It, I want to say it's the dude that was in that vampire movie with uh, Aaliyah. Oh, God. Uh, the Damned. Uh, something The Damned. Yeah. Queen of the Damned. Queen of the Damned. Um, I think yeah. it's somebody. But it's, it's it's a much younger guy who's not Viggo Mortensen. I'd, I'd only seen Viggo. Scott at, Stapp looking fucker. I <laughs> Might might be. I don't know. It might be. Hmm. Uh but yeah, I, I think that's one of the, the kind of the great, you know, what ifs because Vigo, I can't imagine anybody else being him at this point. Yeah. Um yeah. But they also changed like so the person that comes and rescues Frodo and takes him across a river was supposed to be this other unnamed you know, he's not an unnamed Glorfindel in the books. But they changed it to Arwen, which I thought was smart because the other big criticism from these films is there's not enough women, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're if you're a young teenage girl and you want to see yourself in this world um, you have Eowyn in the second and third films who has pretty badass role, but there's not, there's not a lot of characters and giving Arwen some of these action shots. And I think like her horse chase is like one of the more exciting things in the movie. There's especially if you're a big fan, there's this point where she speaks Elvish to her horse, where she's encouraging it to go faster. And I swear to God, this horse puts in a performance. Like, it's like, Hell yeah, Arwen, I got some more in reserve. And he like really digs in his hoof and goes faster. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's one of those scenes where it's like, you know, when um, uh, Vin Diesel flips on the the, the afterburners in, in uh, Fast and Furious. Like, I don't know how, but the horse emotes that he's trying to go faster. And it's a great scene. It's my it's one of the favorite things I like to look for. Um, uh, one one of the best things that they do in this movie is uh, mm-hmm. is tied up in this this scene. Um in, during the entire film, the Nazgul are up their ass. Like there is never a moment where I feel like, okay, they've hit a, a, a point of safety. They can settle down and, and really like catch their breath. The Nazgul are up their ass this entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a brief respite at Rivendell where the power of the elves can repel, repulse them. And also I think, but you know, uh, they got to leave that eventually. Right. Like that's the right. thing. The, the Nazgul are out because there if waiting. They stay there. They stay there. Eventually Sar- Sauron will reconstitute. And he'll come down with all of the armies and destroy burn this place to the ground. Yeah. So it's a, and it's a refuge, a, but it's not safety. There's a ticking timer, you know, with the orc army that he's building, the orc goblin army. Um, yeah, they, they do a good job of making it feel extremely urgent that they get on yeah. with this fucking quest. Do you think that because like one of the big reasons that Tolkien wrote this book is his experiences with World War One and seeing uh, the Industrial Revolution destroying the English countryside. Do you think and that's one of the major themes like mechanized warfare and how inhuman it is. And I thought yeah. if you know that theme going in there, there's a lot of good stuff where like Saruman is just callously, you know, rip the trees down the root, you yeah. know, and they're they're turning it into steel and they've got these birthing chambers of the Urukai. Did you get that? Like, of course, you know, no, no, no. that's a shame. But now because that you like, say I, it, I, I, I see a little bit of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they cut out the entire part of the books where because the, the Lord of the Rings and the books ends with the hobbits coming back to Hobbiton with no one to help them. 
but there's still a remnants of Sar like Saruman's like slave labor empire, and they've turned Hobbiton into this nightmare, oh, and they have Jesus. to personally run them off just with their own skills and ability that they've gotten from you know fighting in the War of the Ring, um, and they they really explicitly make it that you know like like how bad these working in factories are and mm-hmm. you take these simple folk and you take away their land you poison the river and what have they got left um but i i thought they did a little bit if if you're a tolkien fan you kind of see that in the margins here of that work um but yeah you get the rivendale and you got the council of elrond and the plot just slams to a halt and in the books it's 10 times worse but uh, I don't know. They, I think they quickly, they efficiently introduced like Boromir and hit, set him in somewhat opposition to Aragorn. I don't think it makes sense if you don't know the book plot, but you get that there's a little bit of beef, you know. Um, and also Aragorn, Aragorn, like he's dressed up and he's wearing fancy clothes, and just the way he carries himself among the elves kind of sets him apart from Boromir. Uh, hmm. Boromir fumbling this artifact that's in their shared history, but. He's too blustery to give it its appropriate respect. I, I think all that stuff is good. And um, man, Liv Tyler to me is like the top three all time most beautiful fictional characters as Arwen. Like I, something about her just glows uh, in these movies and well, everything is glowing. <laughs> Like, yeah, but but like I remember back in the day, some movie reviewer described her as having a certain bovine beauty and I wanted to fight them. Like I got so angry at them besmirching my lady's honor that I wanted to go and fucking fight them. Bovine Uh, beauty. Hmm. Yeah. What cow like? What is cow like about? See, what is beautiful about cows? Okay, sure. It's just some guy talking shit. Some guy talking shit. He wouldn't do that if Aragorn is in the room. Anyway, uh, I, I love Jackson- the, the the birthing stuff that you were talking about, the birthing chamber of the Rakai. Like that shit is real gross. A, which I like to see, and B, it's it's a real good introduction to the leader of that uh, warrior race. I don't know. They they yeah, make the it pretty Ur-Kai. clear that it's a hybrid, right? Uh huh. Yeah. I didn't know if uh, Rakai was the name of the the particular. Uh, if it was the name of the species that he's creating, the the warrior race, or if it's just yeah. that guy's name. Um, yeah, you've got like the the common orc, and then these are the uruk high that he's he's perfected. Uh, but that's it because that stuff's not in the book. The fact that they have a leader, but you need that. Yeah. You need that. So you have the emotional climax of Aragorn whipping his ass in the the final film and make it yeah. a personal Boromir's death personal. You've got instead of just like. You know, band of orcs. You got evil personified. Uh, mm. I, I thought, and that's. I think that's a smart uh, adaptation too. Yeah, just killing uh, another orc goblin creature wouldn't have done it at the end of this movie. Jackson mentioned that like this shoot for the Council of Elrond was a nightmare. It took him like seven days of eighteen-hour shooting, and like how complicated it was to keep everyone's eye line and oh. the camera moves. Uh, you know, because you so you don't cross the line and all that stuff which I think was was interesting. Um, yeah. But also, like, yeah, it's a nightmare in the book. Like, it takes six to seven days to read uh, <laughs> to make it through if you're a 13-year-old. Jesus. But there's also a lot of, I, I thought, um, like, Jackson told uh, Ian McKellen to play Gandalf when Frodo volunteers for the ring as if, like, your son volunteered to to go off to fight World War One. You know, but but you also know it's necessary for him to do so. And yeah. I'm like, well, shit. Yeah, that's exactly what he's he's given. Um, 
And I thought like it's just everything is moves once you get past that. Like, you know, you got Ian Holmes given, you know, one last chance showing what will what fate will 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 uh, meet Frodo if he doesn't master the ring. Um, the the giving of the sting and the mithril vest I thought was really cool. Um, I do uh, think Bilbo's facial trans transformation yeah. is a bit much. I agree. It's certainly effective. And I about shit my pants the first time I saw it in the movie. But I feel like Ian Holm could just do that. Yep. But yeah, um, um, I don't think it added, and I don't think it was warranted given what it it added. Um, I, I also really like when you know the hobbits show up and volunteer for the quest uh, along with Frodo. That that whole scene mm-hmm. is cute, and I, I like the cute stuff that the hobbits are doing throughout this entire movie. Yeah, it's important to their arc that they have to start this way. And also, yeah. this is, they're no, like, you could argue that they got into this thing blind on the road debris, but now they've been through all that stuff and they know the stakes yeah. and they're still volunteering to go to this crack of fucking doom. Mm-hmm. Sounds, you know, it's like, it, this is what happened to you in the Shire. Now you're going to go to this place called Mordor and uh-huh. throws this this the ring into the crack of doom at the height of all these evil people's power and these these little people are just volunteering for it it's uh yeah it's uh it's it's beautiful it says something about the human spirit um on the way to mordor there's a lot of like again like all these like heavy lifting scenes they have like this comic scene of the hobbits and boromir kind of play fighting him training them but that sells the hobbits later kind of distinguish themselves a little bit in combat in this movie and a bunch in the rest also explains why Boromir would fight to the death for them and why the hobbits would be, you know, um, so endeared that they'd try to defend him. Like this is setting all this stuff up for the climax of the movie. Yeah. I mean, Uh, I could have sacrificed a lot of this stuff, a lot of the road trip monster, uh, fight, fight this monster, fight that monster, endure this hardship, that hardship for a little bit more, mm development of characters um a, a little more context for everything it would have been my preference um but i again i acknowledge this is part one of a three-part story and i just think that enough i mean i don't know people say it plenty but this movie is so beautiful because it really showcases um new zealand yeah like these shots in the mountain and when they're just like doing the you know just randomly walking through fields and forests and stuff that you know, George Lucas would shoot that in a green screen and have a bunch of uh, graphic artists gin up something. But holy hell, you can't beat these dudes in a real, you know, real place. Like I, I even thought that that like the the place where they're hiding from the birds, that that might be CG. But Peter Jackson said no, that like the him and one of the helicopter guys were flying over on the way to another set. And this little helicopter guy mentioned, you know, I saw this really cool place in this mountain. It's got all these kind of like the Stonehenge like formation. And mm-hmm. Jackson's like, yeah, let's buzz by it. And he's like, oh, yeah, I want to take a picture of that. We'll come back here. I mean, New Zealand has got all it is Middle Earth. It's got all this shit for free. Yeah. You just have to go and out with a camera and film it. They use it all, man. They go from the, the top of the earth. Uh, way up in the sky all the way down to the depths of the core like there it does add i I will say like yeah i could have used less of that in more context but also it adds to the epic feel of the whole thing right yeah and there's a lot of stuff for like book fans like you probably didn't don't notice but legolas when he's walking through this waist foot uh, waist deep snow is he actually glides along top his feet don't Okay, because like that's something I assume that was just like the elf ability. Because like, I, well, yeah, I also know like from talking with you and all my other friends oh, okay. from that era, like 
they're you know the elves are like fleet of foot and very you know they they have the agility and acrobatic abilities and and from seeing future movies that hadn't come out yet um where he's like dancing on elephants and shit i i noticed that and i was like oh that's that's cool I think it's it's one of those things that's kind of in the margins that it's such a nice touch. They don't go into like all the different magical abilities, but like the fact that these elves are like yeah. the, the Uruk High are these heavy putting, you know, breaking stuff as they walk and elves just like they don't even bend blades of grass. They don't leave no mark on the land and the land can't really do any nothing natural can do anything to them like Legolas doesn't feel cold. Uh, yeah. You know, the earth can't hurt him because they, they have this like special relationship with it. Uh, I, I think the shit that that shit's really cool. I yeah, love Gandalf and Saruman's weather off where they're chanting at each other, uh, yeah. trying to undo each other's magic. Or I guess I guess what they're doing is trying to Saruman's trying to wake up this mountain spirit and Gandalf's trying to put it back to sleep, which is from the from the books. Uh, but I love that. I, I love that scene. Christopher Lee at the top of uh, Orthanc, just like conjuring up this wicked storm. It's so cool. Here's the thing I couldn't help but notice during these traveling scenes. Um, they're they're going across the countryside here, and I'm thinking back to the scene where like, is it is it Arwen? Does that live, Tyler? Mm-hmm. Uh, Arwen conjures a bunch of horses in the river and sweeps away uh, yes. the Nazgul that are coming after them. And uh-huh. and I'm thinking of that, and I'm looking at this traveling group, and I'm seeing one fucking horse. One horse. It, it's it's literally there couldn't be you couldn't conceive of a more important mission, a more important yeah. quest that they desperately need help for, and the elves send them off with a single fucking horse. Are you kidding me? Not even a horse, a pony. Oh, a God. pony. You're right, and you know the Elrond had a stable of these famous yeah. uh, immortal elfin Arwen's horses. Got that one. Can, yeah, just make them out of sea foam. Uh. Jesus, I mean, she's riding one, right? She picks up. Uh, That's true. Well, maybe she gets that from from someone. Maybe she gets that from Aragorn or somebody. Uh, the elves know. have to have horses, right? It, absolutely. Mean, gotta have horses. If they got one, because I'm thinking like, well, maybe they're philosophically against riding. And, but nah, nah, Arwen's riding one right there. Yeah. Um, and she's damn good but, at it, too. So You mentioned that there's not a lot of foreshadowing, but there is a little bit here where they foreshadow how bad an idea the going through the minds of Moria are and the Balrog, yeah. because like... Christopher Lee's like reading scripture up about it and they're like he's taunting Gandalf from afar and you're like oh man this looks fucking uh um, this looks pretty like a bad idea and also the fact that Gandalf just does not want to go like no, he's I, risking I their lot and then the fact that the rest of the nine are like you're insane old man for taking us this way and he still knows that this is mm-hmm. probably the better path if, if Frodo hadn't pushed out but uh what do you think of the water? Because like Peter Jackson mentioned in the commentary that the watcher in the water, this big squid thing, uh, he felt like at this point in the movie, you needed a big monster scene because number one, it's cool that you have this big monster scene. The studio wanted to cut it out. We're like, no, we need we need a big monster fight here. And also it commits the group because yeah. they go in here and they see like, oh, shit, the dwarves are not only gone, but they've been brutally massacred with orc arrows. Oh, my God. They go to leave and they can't. Yeah. Because the other thing is, like, as everything gets worse and worse and worse in the mines, the natural thing is, like, let's just go back and find another way. They can't. It's a one. It's a one way journey. And I think that that Watcher in the Water is just one of the best, you know, rubber movie monsters of all time, even though it's all digital. Yeah, no, it was it was a cool scene. I think you absolutely need it to uh, to seal them to their fate, um, essentially. And I was noticing moments like that where they they do it. Um, 
they, they do stuff like that where I'm thinking, is this necessary? Like, why? I would just cut this whole fucking thing. Like, yeah. those birds that come flying by, and I'm like, oh, why are they having a pack of birds come through? Who gives a shit? And then, mm-hmm. you know, they later reveal, oh, those are going actually to Saruman, and they're telling him where they're at. And so, okay, they did actually need those things. And that actually might be why they don't have horses, because I know there is this thing that Saruman had and Sauron have spies everywhere, and they're looking for, like, a big, like, the, what Sauron would do in this situation is he would get all of his dudes together, and he'd come and they'd kick ass in force. And he doesn't expect like the small kind of like minor detachment and like keeping it yeah. going along like dangerous paths and broken ground where maybe horses can't go. I mean, I'm 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 apologizing for the film here. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a giant that bird works. that could have, uh, you know, carried them. <laughs> yes, there. famously, they could just gotten right. here or whatever the the Lord of the Eagles and just finished it all. But uh, yeah. but then what happens? That eagle gets gets ideas and decides to put that ring on its talon. That's true. Then you've got the the dark eagle lord that rules you all. <laughs> taking your babies back to his roost for his foul breed brood yep. to, to, to dismember and to tear apart like so many spring hairs. Um, <laughs> but this, I, I some of the best scenes in this movie, the things that I have the human, the ones that really resonated with me, especially watching this year, is where Gandalf gets lost, which you know. I think it's gr- a great touch that Gandalf, as powerful as he is, he's still kind of human. Mm-hmm. But he has a great conversation with Frodo where Frodo's like, you know, talking about like, I man, I wish my uncle had killed, you know, Gollum. And he's like, well, do you? Because, yeah, there's many that deserve death, but there's a lot of dead that, give, that deserve life. Can you give it to them? Mm-hmm. Like, don't be so quick to deal out death and judgment. And then Frodo turns to whining about, I wish none of this had ever happened. And Gandalf's like, everyone that lives through times like this wishes they weren't here. But that's not for us to decide. All we have to decide is how to use the time we have. And I'm like, I watched that early goings in this year, and I've thought back on it many times that like, no, this sucks. This fucking sucks. 2020 sucks. Mm. But what is bitching about it going to do? Like, what can you do to make things better? What can you do to strengthen your friends, your family, all that kind of stuff, yourself? Um I, I don't know. It's been I don't know how how well I'm applying that, but I it felt I felt like Kismet that I got that right as all this stuff started happening. Yeah. Um and I think that's one of the great great scenes between Frodo and, and Gandalf. Um you ready for some more Lord of the Rings heresy? Yeah, bring it. I think Moria sucks. Its design sucks. Like this is supposed to be the Agreed. biggest, best dwarfen city a marvel a hall Mm -hmm. something that like a a dwarf would be like they call this place a mine look it's a fucking mine it's It's a fucking columns big deal go to any salt mine it looks the same yeah Yeah. they got big ass like i've been to one of these things there's a place in kentucky like right outside of louisville there's a giant salt mine it looks just like it like these just infinite football fields with big load-bearing salt columns where they can't mine it all out or it collapses. So were they carved I think that with dwarven runes? That's the question. That's this what place makes it so fancy. This place doesn't look like anyone ever lived there. And maybe yeah. they're going through the back roads or whatever. But uh-huh. I wanted to see like a glimpse of the great city. Yep. And it can be dour and gloomy because it's not lit. But I never, I never got that. Actually, when they go, do you remember... I was this in the theatrical of like when they go into the city of the dead in the third movie to recruit the army of the dead? No, nope, that remember. shit looks like what I think uh, Moria should have looked like—a uh, once great but 
decrepit underground necropolis now. And I don't feel like that, like Moria to me is actively working mines, abandoned mines, and one small inexplicable tomb where the dwarves took a, a last standout. Why? Why here? I I, I don't know. It. I, I always because thought that Moria's design sucked ass. Take their stand. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Like no, it I'm with be, you. It's just a bunch of columns. I didn't. I wasn't impressed. It's 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 dumb. Yeah. There should be shops and houses and playgrounds and all kinds of stuff. So uh, hate it. Uh, I do. I do like. There's not a lot of comedy in this film, especially as we go forward. But like, I felt like the one, the last ones, is Pippin accidentally kicking that skull down the wall, well, and just like bring. That's like the last time where you can make kind of like like, like laugh along with everybody. You got that sigh of relief, and then the drums hit. Yeah. And then like the movie takes a brief pause in Lothlorien, and then it's a sprint from the rest of the, the film. I, I do like the moment of comedy when they're they're headed down the stairs um, and they're trying to jump this gap. And, and you know, uh, Gimli, it's like nobody throws a dwarf. And also not when the they beard, do, he yeah. does jump, not the beard. <laughs> yeah, it's it's good. I liked it. I forgot. You're right. There are a couple more ha-has. Um, but I, I do think that like my problems with Moria's design aside, uh, this is a spectacular fight. Like this thing that happens in yeah. the burial tomb of Balin or I think it's that who it is. Uh, with the cave just, girl. Yeah, and you got Sting glowing. And even Gandalf is kicking ass with his sword glamdring and his staff, and he's spinning around doing shit. And like everyone kind of gets their own, like Sam's whopping guys with his cast iron pans. Uh-huh. Uh, they introduce the Mithril. Like everyone gets these moments of like badass. They really establish uh, early going Legolas because, you know, we heard, yeah. we heard how kick ass the elves are, but like we don't really see it and how much like. Like one Legolas is worth like ten of the others. It seems like, mm-hmm. um, even though I think Aragorn's supposed to be the fiercest of the ass kickers, but uh, I I just think it's amazing, and it's still like there's a couple of creaky CGI elements, but the cave troll I think mostly holds up because it's in a dark dank and there's not a lot of like light bouncing around. Yeah, um, for sure. The way they played the cave troll is kind of like a simple child. Like he's not really evil. He's kind of been but like he wouldn't want to do, be doing any of this stuff. They've like put him up to it. It's kind of like sad uh, when you know, his death is kind of played on a somber note. Uh, yeah. I like that. Um, I love like how the whole the whole fellowship like goes lights on fire when Frodo looks like he gets skewered. Um, uh, and then they all just kind of like get this battle frenzy from the hobbits down to everybody. I thought that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and even to like. The detention to detail, like every orc faction has a slightly different aesthetic. Like these, I think, are like what you would call goblins. They're like slightly smaller. They got the big, dark adapted eyes. They look different right. from the uh, the the Mordor orcs who look different from the Urukai. Like they all, it feels real. Like you know, these things have been out here for a thousand years, and they've started to adapt to their conditions. I think that's, um, and they have different individual. Like these guys' armor is like black and beetle like. Um, I, I, and probably I, I wonder because it looks like it's better and I wonder if that's because they have all this dwarf and steel that they're able to use where all the other orcs are using like wrought iron shit and like just very primitive cleavers and whatnot uh, yeah I mean that's where the passion uh, behind the scenes comes through right like it'd be so easy to just say well the orcs are the orcs let's load them up with the same gear let's load them up the same makeup done you mentioned that the staircase has the scene with its collapsing has like the last moment of comedy. 
I do think that even in the theatrical version, that staircase scene is a lot. Um, you know, it, it you breaks mean? up the momentum of them desperately running from this Balrog and just sets into a five minute Indiana Jones action piece where they're tossing dwarves and and, uh, you know, teeter totter and all this stuff. It's visually impressive for sure. But I felt like it kind of harms the pacing. Yeah, you're probably right. Probably right. That's not a moment where you necessarily want to have a lot of like slowdown. Yeah, like I, can't I, 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 I would love to see a cut of this where they go from fleeing the big chamber and they instantly the ball rock. Like they just barely make it out across the bridge and then the ball rock is there. Yeah. Um. But you know, like I said, I do like the dwarf the dwarf stuff and the beard and. It's it's pretty good. Plus, it's got some of the sickest archery. Like Legolas is yeah. nailing those three hundred yard headshots. Uh-huh. Uh, some of that stuff is is very cool, and I'm glad it's in there. But it's, uh, it's so effective because they're just like flopping arrows at their feet. Right, they can barely even get the arrow that far. The the goblins or the yeah, orcs, yeah, yeah. and he's just nailing them. Yeah, yeah, because uh, he's just better. You know, elf blood. You think Aragorn's blood's good? Whoo, elf blood. Um. <laughs> Also, so the Balrog is one of the, um, that's another one that I remember thinking, like, what is this thing going to look like? Because it was an intense debate. The book, this, it's very, it's described very uh, metaphorically in the book. And then there's a little bit of stuff in the Cimmerillion about like masses of Balrog armies and whatnot. But there's like all these debates about, did the Balrog have wings? Like, what is something that's made out of flame and shadow even look like? Mm -hmm. Because those are two contradictory things. And uh, you know, I've seen different takes on him, and I never was quite satisfied. But when the Balrog jumps out of that pit, like, nope, fucking, this is a Balrog. That's yeah. exactly what Flame and Shadow looks like. Uh, it's like a living volcano thing. Does it have wings? Yeah, I think. But could they also be just Shadow? And you know, what is real about this mythical thing? I, it's it's amazing. And his standoff with Gandalf just works. Yeah. Gandalf standoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you don't need a bunch of like, you know, energy shooting from their fingers or anything, right? It's all about will. It's all about yeah, you know, some uh, in, intangible power that they have. Yeah, and ultimately and plus, Ian- Gandalf wins that, right? Like, that's the thing that I think is so great is Gandalf wins that, and it's only by essentially an accident that he's dropped into this pit. Yeah. And also, the, it it really hinges on Ian McKellen being able to summon up every bit of his personal power and scream, "You shall not pass!" And yeah. you believe it, absolutely. Like you're, it's going to be your ass if you cross it. Yeah, it's your ass. And you do get him with. And then I want to. I don't care if this is in the extended edition or if this isn't a theatrical. But when you open up with, so Gandalf tumbles into the pit and he's dead. But then you find out he's actually been kicking this Balrog's ass for the rest of the movie. And like the the scene of them falling to the center of the earth and like this old ass man taking this like extreme skydiving position to catch up to the Balrog and just start whipping its ass <laughs> like fist fighting and sword fighting. And it should be ridiculous, but it's so fucking cool. And that again, spoilers for the second movie or it might even be the third where they, there's this wide shot of them reaching the ocean at the middle of the earth. And it's just like, they're just like tight, like a shooting star falling together. Hmm. Oh my God. Uh, that visual. I love it so much. Uh, and then his fly, you fools. I think Ar- yeah. there's also these great moments where Aragorn like can't rip his eyes. Like he's waiting for Gandalf to like get back up. And he's like dodging arrows and stuff, uh, and it's all in slow motion. And Her- Howard scores going for broke on the, or Howard Shore is going for broke on the score. Mm-hmm. Man, uh, 
can we talk about how how Orlando Bloom is like 18 years old and not a great actor at this point yet? Uh, oh, I didn't realize he was that young. But yeah, I yeah, mean. this is his first role and um, it might be bullying wow. to point this out. And it's not it doesn't ruin the movie. But whoever thought it was a good idea to direct Orlando is like, OK, here's the deal. You're an elf and you've hung out with elves your whole life and uh, you might not have ever experienced death. And you should be like confused about the whole concept of death. Like, what the hell's going on? It does not work at all. Everyone else is like giving these A plus 10 out of 10 grief performances. And I, I think there's an idea there of like, surely an elf mm-hmm. is aware of the concept of things dying. Yeah. But like he might not have actually felt this kind of grief before. Like, it, like what is this in my... Ch- but he plays it as if he doesn't understand mechanically what has happened. And he's just not good enough to do it and it sucks I would I don't know I, I I don't I don't know how he could have done it better but you didn't do a great job Mr Bloom and I uh, didn't even realize that's what he was going for so yeah so yeah anyway um but there's also a, the the Jackson said that when he directed Frodo because there's a famous shot of Frodo trying to get out get just just get away from the fellowship at this stage. And Aragorn calls him back and he turns around like with a single tear. And Jackson said, when you turn around, I want audiences to almost be frightened of your grief. Like you should look like a man who's seen a concentration camp or some shit. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that's that's, you know, as, as bad as the Orlando direction was, that was spot on because I felt like all that worked. Yeah. Um, One of the other things they do with Saruman's arc is one of the recurring themes of the Lord of the Rings and even the Cimmerillion is like jealousy of something that other people have. Uh, like men are jealous of elves more immortality and they try to take it for themselves. Um, these like God created all these angels and, and, and I know Tolkien hated this being called an allegory, but I don't know. Walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, swims like a duck. Uh, the God created all these lesser angels that then aided him in creation. And one of those guys was jealous that he couldn't create. So he tried like everything he created in imitation of God turned out to be a mockery. Like he tried to create man and he ended up making orcs. He tried to create ints and he ended up making trolls. Um, and Saruman here is like, got that bug. Like he's this very powerful angelic creature, but he wants to create things. And his idea of what turns out to be perfection is this twisted, you know, animal war race that can do nothing huh. but destroy things. Um, again, it's not like it perfection, right? He claims perfection. And I again, like, I don't think you get the barest hint of the theme, but it is there if you want to discover it, which I think is, gotcha. is cool. Hmm. Um, what? So what do you have anything that you want to say about like Lothlorien? Because Kate Blanchett is amazing. Uh, she's kind of enigmatic. I don't know what you make out of uh, Galadriel. That's, okay, what, I that's make what I thought. Is nothing. Um, like she has some extraordinarily cryptic dialogue that means absolutely nothing to me. Um, where she's like reckoning with something, but I don't know what it is. And I assume it's all just foreshadowing for a shit that's going to happen later. Uh, I-, I really didn't think anything of it. And I actually wasn't impressed by most of what happened here. Like I, I don't know why there is this big love story um, between, you know, Arwen and is it is it Aragorn? Aragorn. Um, mm-hmm. 
I didn't get any of that. Like, th- these are all just characters I just met, and I guess they have a history, okay, but I'm not feeling it in that moment uh, yeah. with, you know, this exchange of immortality and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I wasn't super impressed with Lothorian as a location. I thought Rivendell was... Yeah. F- Rivendell's beautiful. Like, that that whole city just glows, literally glows. Uh, and, and Lothlorien was kind of like a just muted version uh, a muted it's like a, blue it's version like a black light a black light festival yeah. you know yeah, like stoner basement sure. aesthetic well, that's that's high elf versus the woods elf you know they're just like the bumfuck yeah. country bumpkin elves no this um, this whole sequence did nothing for me huh yeah i mean that's the thing like there's tons of stuff like i i love the temptation of gladriel where she's like offered this and like that's that was her final test. Like she now thinks she's worthy to go to heaven at this point. But yeah, none like, of that made sense. It's all like context. It's all con- contextless stuff that I assume yeah. means a lot to somebody who's steeped in the lore. Did you get to? Because like I think the one thing they did g- well is when she like ponders what it would be like to have the ring, and she says, "Instead of a dark lord, you shall have a queen." And like uh. she talks a mess, but I think she does sell the terribleness like how like you know gladriel is a dangerous powerful person by her will alone has she almost single-handedly kept mordor out of her kingdom um and she has one of the rings of power which you probably don't know as well um no but i thought that they really that's a it's an interesting effect where they almost like negative they 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 yeah they somehow dressed her in this like this this steel curious uh like breastplate and like um give this kind of like almost underwater and photo negative that turns this beautiful woman into this like dark twisted thing um similar to like gandalf swelling up in in the uh, yeah. uh bag end and I thought, like, even if you don't, did you get that? Like, was that because mm-hmm. I just no, got, I got chills that she was the being, first time I saw that. I thought that she was being tempted and there was this dark power that could have come to the surface. And especially with the ring, she could be dangerous. But like it, I just I guess at that point, I didn't care because I'm like, OK, if the ring tempts everybody like it's nothing new. You know, Bilbo, yeah. Gandalf, everybody's been tempted by this ring to see that again didn't do much for me. It's too bad because the extended edition, there's a whole... Like, it turns out that uh, Galadriel is Arwen's grandmother. And there's this gr- great scene where she kind of takes Aragorn aside and be like, hey, I see that soul stone you got. What the fuck are you doing, man? Like, uh, when, you, when are you going to stop all this ranging and all this striding and settle down and get a real job and, you know, provide for my grand... Like, there's a little bit of that, like, what you're missing <laughs> wow. about all these interpersonal. She fills that kind of stuff in. Uh, um, yeah. And I thought that's great scenes. But again, this is a slow section of the movie already. There's another even better where, like, um, Boromir and Aragorn have this, like, interesting conversation about, you know, going to the White City. I mean, there's a little bit of that, but there's a much more extended cut where Boromir is just... Because Aragorn's part in this story, and they cut most of this out, is that he thinks that men just can't cut it. Like, he doesn't want to lead them because he doesn't believe in himself and he doesn't believe in the strength of men. Like, he, all, all he can see is the past failures of his ancestors, like every single one of them um, has just been a failure and uh, led to things being worse than better. And he's like, kind of like a, he's the guy that doesn't want to grab the trolley switch and choose between one person dying and five, right? Like Uh I'll just fuck it up and somehow 20 people will die. And Boromir is just like, really, they have this like great conversation, but then he gets frustrated with like, um, 
You know, you are so you're so quick to trust these elves. Like we come to uh, Riverdale, Rivendale, and we go to Lothlorien, and it's all like, oh, you're just you know, you implicitly trust them, and there's no problems. But you know, yes, there's frailty in men, but there's also strength and honor, and you never see that because you just didn't. And I thought it's great. It 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 shows how desperate Boromir ear is because he thinks this guy just is all with the elves and they're going to throw away this one shot to mm-hmm. save the last great city of mankind and it's to what trust a machination of elves and these it seems and it really establishes his character which makes his fall later on in this movie and redemption more powerful but huh. okay. again this is already a very slow scene uh, in the movie so. Um, mm-hmm. I love like you know this probably doesn't mean anything to you but like seeing the the uh, uh, Argonoth the big statues of Isildur and his brother like at the at the I think the southern extent of Gondor um, is really yeah. cool like because I, I always thought those were like visually reading these books they the Tolkien describes all this shit I'm like man I can't wait to see this stuff and it looks fucking amazing yeah. um, just the the scenery them paddling these like beautiful. Um, leaf-shaped boats down this river that's, you know, again, honest, act, other than the statues, it's all middle, that's all uh, New Zealand. Um, I guess the waterfall is the one thing that that's actually from, I think, Africa or South America, and they composited it into the scene. Huh, okay. The one they, they um, send his body over? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that That's like one little foot, that's like the only non-New Zealand scenery in the, the, whole, the whole series. Huh. Um, but yeah, I I don't know, like Boromir failing his test versus Aragorn. Like, I think it's a very beautiful moving thing where Aragorn approaches Frodo and you think he's going to do what everyone else does. And then yeah. he he doesn't. I'm kind of getting low key choked up just thinking about it. Hmm. Um, And in Boromir, like I thought, like, uh, I don't know. What do you what do you think of like Boromir's confrontation with Frodo? Did that work? without all the background or yeah it did they had done enough with Boromir um that that sense that he wanted the ring that um he was not actually strong-willed enough to resist it he might be the one character in this entire uh this entire movie aside from maybe Bilbo who wasn't strong-willed enough uh so so the win yeah he had that turn it made a lot of sense to me and then the contrast that with Aragorn, who's just a little bit, you know, his moral fibers is a little bit stronger than Boromir. Yeah. And and also Boromir's horrific reaction of what he d- did um, and trying to make up for it, I think, uh-huh. is a, a great story. And, and also, I like, man, love the battle that happens because of that. Dude, that part where Ar- right after this, Aragorn's like, you got to get out of here, Frodo. And he turns around and there's just a massive army of orcs and he yeah. salutes them and just starts taking them all on is uh-huh. so fucking badass. Um, and just when it's too much for him, here comes Gimli um, and like Legolas shooting, shooting these arrows like it's like a fucking semi-automatic rifle. Uh-huh. Oh, God. Oh, God. Legolas is I don't I don't know. Like. Some of his later scenes get overshadowed because they're too much. Like, I'm not a big fan of him surfing down staircases on a shield. I do kind of like, like, the the one thing where he's maybe more badass is when he single-handedly takes down that war elephant in the last movie. Yeah. But this scene, like, this is Legolas's time to shine. He's just whipping so much ass. Um, and I mean, all that, these and, root, and like... Bormir, I mean, like, that, that battle... I, I'm a sucker for that trope where, like a character takes what would should be a fatal shot, right? And gets back up and fights again, takes another shot, 
that should also be fatal, gets back up, continues fighting. It takes so much to bring them down. I'm I'm a huge fan of that. Gets me going every they, time. And I don't know who they did all the choreography, but like they sell it. Like, and these yeah. arrows are like fucking dowel rods, man. They're, they're not, like broom handles. Yeah, they're huge arrows. <laughs> Shot and by they, like the leader of the Urukai, right? Like. Yeah, with this big ass seven foot war bow. So you uh, know it's like he's gonna get shoot shot by two by fours. Yep. And you can feel the like the sound design as each one hits into him and he like sinks to his knees, but he always has got and every time he gets back up, there's a little bit less. Like yeah. you know, he's desperately fighting these orcs, but every single time he takes an arrow, it's he's just barely deflecting it the last time. He's barely able to finish this guy. And like there's this one scene where he almost lets gravity drive the killing <laughs> yeah. stroke into the orc. Um he doesn't have anything left in the tank. And just as this orc is about to coup d'etat this guy, Aragorn says, no, fuck you. <laughs> and has another one of these. Like, I felt like there's very few movie fights. I actually think that people are trying to kill each other. Yeah. Like when I see like Pierce Bronson and that one foppish blonde guy fighting in one of the lesser bonds, it's like these guys are just like, oh, yeah, you move your wrist like this. I'll move my wrist like that. And, you know, chink, 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 Errol Flynn stuff. Every one of these chops that the Urukai has taken at uh, Aragorn looks like it's going to decapitate or dismember him. Yeah. And Aragorn's given as good as he got. He gets. Uh, it's like I love that scene where he pins him to his head to the to the tree with the, the shield and like uh-huh. Aragorn. You buy the desperation, like fuck. Ah, uh, yeah. My and, head. If and, I don't get out of this, my head's gone. <laughs> like. Did you know that like Vigo Mortensen actually batted that sword that that dagger out of the air with a sword like first take? Like really? Peter Jackson's like, well, we might have to compile. Let's just give it a try, and he does it. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> like, the guy who had never held a sword before, huh, is now yeah. batting sword daggers out of the air with it. Hey, if you want a good time, look into Vigo Mortensen's personal history. This guy is kind of like you know what like Daniel Day Lewis did to kind of like work himself up the like last of Mohicans. I think that's how uh, Vigo just lives out in the woods. Just yeah. Playing lutes and, and balancing one footed on rocks in the middle of streams while like, you know, rabbits and bluebirds are landing on him. He just seems like he's kind of half elf himself. Huh? Um, he famously adopted his horse in this movie and became like an accomplished horseman since then. He's just a really cool dude. Like every interview I've ever read of this guy, he's like a fucking sage. It's amazing. Look like look up some interviews of him. Um but yeah, I guess I'm there's I mean, the also whole, this the like the whole ending of this movie works for me. Like this this oh, like yeah. I said, the bookends of this thing are really, really strong. Uh and, and you needed it. Like coming out of this movie, I would have been really disappointed if it just kind of ended on uh a middling to flat note. Um oh, yeah. you needed to really punch it up because you're going into the next portion of this movie. You got to be excited about it. Um, yeah. So and they it, have a little it worked. They have a little bit of help because even though this is Act One of a three acts play, um, Tolkien himself writing these new knows he needs like a little bit of climax. Now yeah, it's yeah. funny in book two and three they kind of fucked that up because they have they rearrange things. But in every one of the books there's a nice little climax, and this definitely delivers. I love that shot where Boromir is like blowing the horn and keeping the hobbits behind them, and they establish him, and then they pull back, and you see this like waterfall of orcs that are swarming toward them in this valley. And I guess they used one of those like uh, um, cameras on like a two wire setup that they use like in football games. So it can kind of just like hover like before they had drones. They're doing a drone shot of this. That's just 
amazing. Like, I'm thinking about like every time they reset that, a hundred different dudes has to go back and and find her place and uh-huh. and like just swarm over this hill again. And Boromir's got to blow. It's 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 pretty crazy. Um, also, there's a great little like a New Hope stormtrooper bangs his head shot um, when. Aragorn is ha- starting to have this this personal moment with Boromir. There's an orc that's dead on the ground that lifts his head up because he he thinks it's like in between takes, and then like realizes he's supposed to be dead and lays back down. God, uh, <laughs> it's it's funny to look for, and once you see it, you'll you'll see it in every single uh, time through. But then they, they, they have this. Go ahead. I was gonna say they end on a pretty emotionally resonant note as well. Like that's the thing they haven't they haven't succeeded here, right? There's and in fact, they think they've essentially failed. Um, you know, they expect that Frodo's going off to his doom. He's not going to make it. Uh, and they can no longer support him, which I think is the real blow. Uh, they failed as a, as a group, right? The fellowship has failed. Yeah, the fellowship's broken, yeah. Yeah. Um, but they do what they can, and they go off to save their friends. And I think, like, dividing them up at this point is is great, especially when you have two of the perceived weakest characters going off on their own and a couple of the strongest, three of the strongest going off on their own to save their friends. I, I think it's a really just beautiful ending to this film an emotionally resonant ending. Oh, it's, it's certainly, especially since this kicks like this whole movie, Aragorn has been refusing the call, you know, yeah. like the, the Joseph Campbellian call to, to be a hero. Uh-huh. And here he's so moved by Boromir's sacrifice that he like on a death pledge, like, I, I don't know what strength I've got here, but I tell you what, buddy, if I, if I got it in me, I'm not going to let our people fall. And, uh, then there's this scene, like, I think, I don't think a lot of people notice this, but Aragorn actually takes Boromir's bracers that have the white, the, the symbol of the white city on them and ties them to his own personal gauntlets. Hmm. Like as if he is now finally taking up the mantle of, of the King that's going to f- eventually return. Um, yeah. And yeah, his, his, his line reading where he's like, you know, we'll not abandon our friends to torment and death. Let's, let's hunt some orc. And you know, like <laughs> his natural leadership, getting this uh, elf and dwarf to kind of low key hated each other this whole movie. They're like now fucking like, yeah, hell yeah. Let's go hunt some orc. Yeah. Um and you know Sean Sean uh Aston uh Austin and and Elijah Woods has a beautiful scene where Frodo yeah. doesn't trust nobody. Yeah. Um but Sam just won't like like look I'm either going to follow you or die. Mm-hmm. And Frodo can't let it happen. Uh I, it's you know there's a lot said about this masculine you know friendship and relationship and the love that these two men have for each other but I I still think it's you know Elijah Woods, these giant blue expressive eyes, yeah, uh, tear your heart out every single time. And um, sure. I guess something else I thought was amazing is they actually shot a whole battle scene where the orcs peel off and force Frodo into the water, and like he's desperately fighting them off and getting through the boat. And Peter Jackson's like looking at the dailies, like, "What are we doing? This isn't Frodo versus the orcs. This is Frodo versus his inner nature and the ring." And it can only be about that. And they change it to just to him, the shot with the words of Gandalf going through his head that like, we don't get to choose all we get to choose is what we're doing next. And Mike, the, the director's commentary track was like, they had 20 different paths. They could have gone down that each one would have weakened the movie and made it lesser. And they mm-hmm. somehow through some instinct always took the right path or for, with rare exception. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, yeah, like the final shot of Frodo and Sam looking at that, like, 
you know, like the last of the good land is behind them. It's nothing but hell lying ahead. Yeah. It's so iconic and so amazing and beautiful. And they've color corrected it all to hell and they've added a bunch of special weather effects, but it's, it's just great. It's amazing. So, uh, yeah, I, I have one question. Um, so the, the Urukai were commanded to, uh, bring, bring them Frodo, right? Bring, bring Saruman Frodo, uh, kill the others. They don't kill the others. They they take Pippin and Mary with them alive, very much alive. Is that because they don't know which Hobbit has the ring? They're exactly right. They're okay. given orders to grab the, the grab the Hobbits and return them unspoiled to uh, Saruman, who can then deliver them. They figure out who's got the one and take it to Mordor. Okay. And also, these guys are personally loyal to Sauron, Saruman, uh-huh. and so. Technically, they should probably just take it straight to Mordor, but he wants that boon to cement his relationship with Sauron. Sure. Or maybe, maybe actually take the ring for himself. Yeah, yeah. And and rule Middle Earth. Who can? Because uh, I don't know that I don't know that Saruman actually thinks he's evil at this point. Hmm. He might think that like what he needs to like you know like all these elves and men is going to fuck shit up. These guys were the 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 these these angelic kind of wizard figures were sent to guide and mentor. Middle Earth through all their different strifes, and I think he thinks this is his ultimate mission. Like this is what he's supposed to be doing. But I don't was, know. I guess was there any of that in the fight scene between him and Gandalf? Because I I will admit, during that fight scene, all I was looking at was Gandalf spinning on his nose or whatever, uh, and how silly that all looked. Uh, I was completely I ignoring saying, the dialogue if there was some about it. No, I mean, like, there's a lot in the lead up where he's like, you know, we should, I've seen everything. I've seen there's no way to beat this guy. We need to join our forces with him. Uh, and that's when he does, like, tell me, my friend, when is the blah, blah, blah turn to madness? But yeah, yeah. I, 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 and again, I, I don't know how much of that is actually in the book that, like, Saruman has, is he actually evil? Because, you know, he's making these orcs, they look pretty evil. But, you know, what does that even mean? You know, like, Tolkien didn't know it was kind of gauche to, just nakedly code evil people to be ugly and dark and <laughs> yeah, uh, this, this stuff like that. But um, I thought it's also like there's like this long ass credit sequence and Peter Jackson talks through most of it and he talks about his personal feelings. Because if you're mad at me for saying that you like uh, that, I thought the theatrical versions are better films. He agrees. He says, I don't consider this the director's cut. The director's cut implies that the studio took something away and made it lesser, and the director's cut restores it to the full glory. This is literally an extended edition. It's got more stuff in it, stuff that I think some of it would have worked well in the movie, some of it that I think is really great and great material but destroys the pacing of the film. But this isn't like my favorite version of the film. This is just an extended version for hardcore fans and I think it plays like that. Like I, if you liked, like I said, I, I think I'd be very curious to see what you would think about a four hour cut of this movie. Cause that's about what it is uh, yeah. when they added all the stuff back into it. Um, because like I, they, yeah, for casual fans that like really like this, but you know, like, like people like you don't like fantasy, but they like this. I, I don't know that that would, if you, if you, I'm not a big fan of nerds making their casual friends watch the extended versions or be like, well, if you don't watch the extended versions, you're not watching it at all. Because if you can't get enough, you're right. But some people yeah, like, yeah. this is just enough, you know, and some oh, people, this, this is, is a little just, too much. just tolerable. Like I, I enjoy it because it's, it moves quick and because there are moments of levity and because there's exciting action uh, yeah. And and some heartfelt emotional moments. I don't love it because I love the lore. The lore is yeah, the shit yeah, that yeah. I could care less about in this movie. Uh, yeah. So 
yeah, it's it succeeds despite its source material in a lot of ways for me. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot, like I said, that I, I think it destroys the pacing, but I love the the nine getting all their gifts from Galadriel. Because in the movie, all you get is, you know, the stuff that you must know because it becomes yeah. important in the plot, like, you know, Frodo getting that vial of starlight. Um, oh, right. That's, in, in, that's foreshadowing for a future movie, right? Exactly. Okay. But they, they all get individual gifts, and I think some of that stuff is cool. Mm-hmm. I, I even think it's, I love Legolas's infamous Limbus bread commercial. Uh, <laughs> where he like almost directly turns to the camera and says, "Limbus bread, one bite can make keep a grown man fed for days." You know, uh, there's yeah, there's magic elven bread that they they because like you know, Tolkien it, tries to answer a lot of people's questions like, "How the hell are yep. these guys going to survive?" Well, they got special magic bread. And, I was absolutely uh, thinking like, man, that horse must be carrying a lot of supplies. But yeah, yeah, there's a lot of like interesting kind of funny things about that. Oh, that's the other thing. The one technical detail I forgot to mention. Um, is Galadriel and is one of the few elves that remembers the time that still left in Middle Earth that remembers the time when they had these magic trees that per, before the moon and the sun was created, they they lit the world. And um, they had talk about that light being reflect, that ancient light still reflecting out of her eyes. And Peter Jackson to play homage to that. Um, they, they usually like characters with like, they call it a pupil light or an eye light that like gives you that little like anime gleam in your eye. Yeah. With her, he took like a ball of Christmas lights and used that for it. So when you look really close, it looks like she's got like a star constellation That's cool. uh, reflected in her eye. And I, ever since I noticed, or ever since I saw that in the behind the scenes, I love seeing those notes. And there's tons. There's like, if you watch these special features, every fucking 30 seconds, you'll see a love letter to Tolkien mm-hmm. in the background that you would never pick out unless you're like an Uber fan or the person that worked on it. And yeah, if you are a fan of these films, I highly recommend the special features on the Blu-rays and DVDs because, first of all, it's a year of film school. How much does that cost? You know. Uh, second, it's just it's just so much detail packed in. It will destroy some of the magic because you also can't help but notice some of the effects and stuff that they you the know stilts um, and the long gloves. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and how they do like some of that stuff is really cool. Um, and uh, man, I wish they would. I wish every couple of years they'd get that exhibit out and have a tour again. I think it would make a lot of money because like part of the exhibit was they had the mock up of like that cart that Ian McKellen and Elijah Wood wrote on and you could pose with a friend of yours and they do the exact same camera angle. So it looks like you're a (laughs) massive and they're a hobbit. Uh, (laughs) They give you like a souvenir photo of it and like just seeing how that physically works is so cool. Um, and you get it, you can see it on the, the, you know, because they show like, here's the camera angle and then they pan over and you can kind of see the effect lose, but like being there and actually doing that shit is super cool. Yeah. Um, okay. Before we go, uh, Dr. John had a lightning round of questions he wanted to ask us. Number one, which film in the trilogy is your favorite? It's been, it's been almost 20 years, man. I, this one, because it's the one I've seen most (laughs) recently, like. I legitimately couldn't tell you there's a spider in one of them. Uh, mm. The Mount Doom scenes are cool. Like, I, I can't tell you most of what happens in the next two. So this one currently. I mean, there's amazing parts in all of them, uh, but it's hard to beat Return of the King. It's hard to beat the exclamation point at the end of this. Um, you know, you could quibble with the 17 different endings that it has, but 
there's amazing action, like the massive battles and all their glory. Um, all of everyone's arcs coming to an end. Uh, all that stuff is, I don't know. It just, it just really works. The personal, t- all the different heroism coming together. Um, I, you know, the, the last charge of the Rohirrim, uh, the Theoden speech before that, like there's a bunch of like a plus uh, it's, it's too bad because Aragorn's speech about the, I see in you the very fear to it snatched the heart of me away is actually B tier compared to fucking Theoden's crazy, you know, right now for wrath and for ruin. Ah! Like, you know, clanging spears swords with all of his dude spears as he rides down the combat. Like, like it's hard to beat mm. that. And it's too bad that Aragorn had to follow that because technically his speech should be even better. But yeah, I like. I guess Return of the King is my yeah, favorite. Yeah, that's the one with the with the Minister stuff in it, right? Like the the White City. Yeah, yeah, and the spider. Yeah, um, the, all that, that shit's stuff. really cool. I I remember uh, being super impressed by the scale of that thing. Yeah, and I just like man, the eagles always get me. Like when they like when the, the everything looks lost and like the the ring wraiths come in with their fell beasts, and it's like oh these guys are gonna get ripped apart, and the eagles come out of nowhere, start whipping their ass. <sighs> ah, it's, it's good stuff. Good stuff. Um, Lord of the Rings versus Game of Thrones books and visual medium. I haven't read either of them. Uh, it's 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 tough. I it, like Game of Thrones gets marked with an incomplete grade. Like mm-hmm. I can't even give it an F. It's just incomplete. It's I'm disappointed. This had so much potential. Um, I'm writing in red in the margins. Um, I think it could have dethroned Lord of the Rings because Lord of the Rings is. It's it's very high fantasy. It's very yeah. not relatable. Um, where the intricate plotting and machinations and stuff at Game of Thrones, um, the you know it, it's not just black and white, good and evil. It could have been better, but it certainly did not. You know, it did not get there. You know, if you want to debate like Game of Thrones seasons one through six versus Lord of the Rings Fellowship and Two Towers, it's still tough. But you know, not for me. Go- I pick Game of Thrones every time in that scenario. But yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the ending is such a sour note on Game of Thrones that I don't even know if I could choose it. Even though I don't yeah, even like, remember the last two movies of Lord of the Rings, I still feel like it doesn't deserve it. No, I mean Tolkien's got Returning the King, and Game of Thrones got Get this bitch out of here. You know, like it's <laughs> right. not, it's not even the same. Yeah. Um, this next question, number three. Theories on why Peter Jackson never quite made it back to this level of filmmaking. I mean, he's still a young man, right? Like, I mean, he's still a man. Sure, he can still, he still exists. And I, I think The Hobbit was something he got forced into for good intentions and is just, you know, it, it's like the one thing where the studio just interfered way too much in. Um, and maybe he was, I, I don't know. Like, I... I I don't got it in me to watch the bonus features of the Hobbit. Uh, so, but I, I understand that there's a whole lot of like, first of all, there was um, the studio like really beat up New Zealand's film community to make this on a bare bones budget. Whereas before it was kind of a bonanza that launched it. And there was a lot of people that uh, they wouldn't pay. And there's like Peter Jackson put a premium on getting these nine guys together and have a hang out and be friends. So that would uh, um, translate and, and and everyone gets a little peace, so there's no jealousy, and everyone feels like uh, this this kinship and bond. And they didn't do that. There's a lot of compositing actors together, and you know people not you know uh, there's just there's a lot of 
shortcuts and, and corner cutting that affected everyone's kind of like ownership of it. So uh, that said, you know, Peter Jackson still has 15, 20 plus years ahead of him. It wouldn't surprise him if he did something cool. Yeah. Uh, hopefully crazy. not any. Yeah. I, I kind of think of Peter Jackson as a independent, like amateur style filmmaker. Uh, Cause all the stuff that I associate with Peter Jackson before this is all much smaller budgets, much more like avant garde, just like, let's jam a camera in here and let's go at these crazy, you know, rubber faced zombies with a lawnmower kind of thing. Like, it has this gonzo sort of feel to it that is is present in this film in places, but you can definitely it, see the classic Peter Jackson in places for sure. In a couple of spots, but for the most part, like the whole movie is like this mainstream big budget feel to it. Uh and so when I think like, oh, Peter Jackson would go on after this to do something just as big or epic or mainstream that kind of doesn't make sense to me. Um, it, it might be the case where he doesn't want to do that stuff. He just wants to have like that control that you get with sort of independent style filmmaking. Uh, and he can't find that in outside of like this crazy, like we talked about how crazy this project is that it even happened, mm-hmm. right? That you give yeah. this guy a whole bunch of money and create all these crazy processes and stuff that's never been done. You know, if he can't find that scenario again, maybe he doesn't want to do it. I mean, he's done taking a shot like King Kong, a three hour King Kong film. That was kind of yeah. gonzo and it didn't crater. Um, it's but it's kind of foreshadowed the Hobbit of like, ooh, there's there's a lot of excess in this movie. Uh, Mortal Engines was garbage. Uh, oh, he, did he didn't he didn't direct it. He produced it. And he I guess he handpicked the director and he wrote it. But that huh. movie is is bad. Um, I didn't even bother seeing I, it because the concept looks so stupid. No, nah, he he might. I mean, like I said, he might uh, he might be a George Lucas where he did his best work and as a young man with a lot of vigor and a lot of big ideas. And I also I I, I haven't gone back and seen some of his smaller serious studio fil- not studio but independent films like uh, Heaven was it Heavenly Creatures? Is that the one that everyone talks mm. about? I haven't seen that. Um, one. Yeah, that's the one that's got uh, Kate, not Kate Blanchett, uh, uh, the woman, the draw me like your French girls, <laughs> Kate Winslet. Yeah, Kate Winslet. That's the one's got Kate Winslet about these like serial killer murders from New Zealand or Australia that everyone is that everyone thinks holds that movie in high esteem. Uh, I'd like to see that because I think he could definitely go back to doing that. But I don't know bigger stuff, yeah. like especially since that feels like he has a little bit. Of, it's got to be bigger and better and more epic than it can. But man, you can't. When you hit Lord of the Rings, there's nowhere to go but down. It's like going to the North Pole and saying, I got to go norther. You can't. You can't, man. Sure. You can go as north, but you can't go norther. Yeah. So I, I don't know. But again, his career is not over. Um, but I do think that also The Hobbit, again, everything I've read behind the scenes, like that kind of broke his back as far as dealing with the Hollywood system and fighting with them and the like the, the crushing amount of work and stress. It just... Maybe he needs to go back and do some heavenly creatures type stuff. Yeah, and finally, like I know, I know a whole bunch about like you know through like Adam Savage and Tested and like that whole crew spends a lot of time like you know at Weta or talking with Peter Jackson and they're all friends and stuff. And I get the impression that he is very much a guy who loves the craft of it. Like, yeah, he wants to get in there and do like really crazy innovative things. 
Um, he enjoys like that model making kind of mentality. How compatible is that with big budget filmmaking? I can't imagine it's it's the same experience. Yeah. Because I don't think that, like, I don't know how many bigotures they made for the Hobbit series. I don't think it's nearly as many as they did for this. And it's a, probably is a lot of CGI compositing, even in just the stunt works and stuff. And I can imagine now that everything's so mature, like this weird hybrid thing where, like, a shocking amount of it's real yeah. with just a little bit of movie magic to make everything work. Like, I, I don't, if, if that's true, then I imagine just the modern Hollywood blockbuster, there were studios are going to pay for that. Fucking no. do it and do it digitally. That way, yeah. if we don't like it, we can just redo it. You know, <laughs> sure. I, I saw, I, that that might I can see kind of being brokenhearted about that if you're a real craftsman. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, Doctor John wants to know what are you looking forward to with the Amazon series, and that's well, a great question. I was looking forward to this story being drawn out into you know thirty plus hours or whatever, t- telling the story with more, you know, the context that I feel I'm missing here, the character development I feel I'm missing here. Apparently it's not going to be this third age Lord of the Rings story. It's going to be something else. So I'm I mean, a little the, bummed the, about that now. Yeah. I think if I understand the new project that it's climax will be the prologue of this movie. Like, you know, everything will build up to the the first war of the ring and you'll have all this, you know, Isildur and his dad and brother marshalling the human forces and Elrond riding forth. And they'll be Gandalf there and Galadriel. And um, I mean, I don't know. I did, did, will they do the fall of Numenor and all that kind of stuff? But it's not going to be this. And that's why it's like, I, I mean, I definitely could. I'm not as excited for this as some other things because I just don't know what they'll make of it. It's going to be shot in. Middle Earth, uh, a.k.a. New Zealand. Um, I imagine a lot of the special effects people and the craftsmen will be the same. Uh, so you got that going for us. But like the other thing is like the casting of this film. Um, I love these books and read them many, many times. In fact, I read them all before the the movies came out, right right before I got a new, new editions of them. Um, and I had built up mental images through looking at all these picture books and artwork of like what all these things looked like. And they just knocked it out of the park. They got the perfect Frodo, the perfect Gandalf, the perfect Aragorn, uh, seemingly by accident in some of these cases, because they kind of lucked, you know, backed in like, oh, shit, this Aragorn sucks. Who can we get? Oh, you know, I I liked uh, what the Mortensen guy did on G.I. Jane. He seems like he could be somebody who's gruff and tough. Let's bring him in there. And he ends up being half elf. Uh, Mm hmm. I it's it's about like the cast and the story and all that Cimmerillion and uh, appendix stuff from Lord of the Rings. Is that going to work? Because that's not adapting something great. It's reading an encyclopedia or a Wikipedia article about something. And then, you know, like like read an encyclopedia article about World War One and now make an entertaining story f- about it. Yeah. Craft. The that's tough. Yeah, or like, you know, what we saw the Double Ds did, like, you know, adapting great works versus working with a few bullet points. That's mm-hmm. tricky. Um, they got a big budget and they got some uh, decent talent att- uh, attached to it. But like, will it be the Lord? of the- I can't imagine. I can't imagine it will be this generational once in a lifetime kind of thing, like the way Lord of the Rings ended up being. I really I don't. Yeah. I don't. Um but I am look, yeah, I'm looking forward to to seeing being back in this world because I, I I enjoy the being back in the middle. That's why I sat through all the fucking Hobbit movies because I love this world so much. And when it works, it really works. So, any other last thoughts, or should we get out of here, Jim? No, let's get out of here. 
Let's run. Dr. John, thank you very much for th- forcing us to watch this long ass movie. I watched four hours of film. Actually, I watched a thousand hours of Middle Earth shit <laughs> over the last 20 years and spent hundreds more reading my 43 years on Earth to prepare for this podcast. <laughs> Which is why uh, I only had to watch three hours. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> Um and yeah, I think this might be our longest podcast ever that wasn't like a marathon, you know, yeah. the charity thing. So uh thank you for commissioning it. If commissioning a podcast sounds like a good idea to you, go to support.baldmove.com, click on the commission a podcast link, and it will have all the details on how much it costs and the process. And if you pull the trigger, Jim and I will be in touch to get your notes and all that kind of stuff. Um but yeah, that's how you do that. And again, thank you very much, Dr. John, for commissioning this. I had a lot of fun recording this with my buddy. Um, and I hope you enjoy it. Hope everyone enjoys it. That will be it for this week's Bald Move Pulp. My God, we might have to make this a two installment thing. Three. <laughs> Three-parter, yeah. Let's expand it. Let's just talk another hour. We got three hours. Fellowship, Fellowship of the pod. And then we'll have <laughs> the two podcasters. And then it'll be Return of the Bullshit. Uh <laughs> But yeah, we hope everybody enjoys it, and we'll see you back uh, next time on Pulp. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.